Welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. I'm Jay Late Night Larson. And I'm Lyndon Chalky Cabellion. In each episode, we will be talking to different surfers and surf shops to learn more about them and their passion for surfing. We will be diving deep into their experiences as well as their involvement and contributions to their local communities. Be sure to check out our website and Instagram feed for updates on future shows. Thank you for your support and we look forward to sharing these great stories with you. Getting a new vehicle can be stressful, but not at Lake Elsinore Chrysler Dodge Jeep and Ram. That's where surfers go inland to purchase their new and used vehicles. Late Night with Chalky is supported by Inherent Bummer. Surf entertainment, thoughtful writing, surf videos, music, and fresh hell for the core surf community. Remember, it's not the end of the world. Subscribe and check it all out at InherentBummer.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Neon Wave. Neon Wave is an internationally local shop, a concierge to the modern nomad. They bring together carefully chosen surf, fashion, art, and snowboarding gear with a curatorial eye that's drawn to the best of the best, technicality, creativity, and sustainability. Their team is born from nature, raised by the wave, and nurtured by the culture they support. This is Neon Wave. We look forward to moving forward. Check them out at thisisneonwave.com. Surfa CBD, grown by surfers for surfers to help you maintenance your body after a lifetime of surfing. Follow us on Instagram at Surfa, S-E-R-F-A, CBD. Use promo code late night with chalky at checkout for 20% off surfacbd.com. WaveKey is the world's most comprehensive land-based sensory surf discipline. The brainchild of former number one surfer Brad Gerlach, WaveKey's martial art-like focus on slow, precise, land-based movements embed powerful surfing patterns and fundamental technique for surfers of all levels. WaveKey is a land-based program allowing you to achieve a heightened focus on the movements as you practice. The effects of this are amplified when the practice begins to subliminally emerge in your surfing. It takes time for this to happen, but when it does, your surfing improves dramatically. Brad Gerlach is front and center in all aspects of the unique Wave Key course, presenting recorded videos, live session videos, Q's and A's, and insightful expert notes. Nuggets of gold that you simply won't find anywhere else. Wave Key. For the love of surfing. Friends and family, brothers and sisters, welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. Our guest this week created a brand back in 1995 that was referred to as a hippie brand because they believed and focused on sustainability. Over 25 years later, the brand is world-renowned for its renewable alternatives and continues to be on the forefront of eco-friendly materials, minimizing their impact through all their products. Snowboards, skateboards, apparel, footwear, bags, you name it, they make it. Since day one, they continue to support many organizations and foundations with like-minded companies to help protect our planet. We are pumped to hear everything about Arbor Collective over the last 25 years and what they what the future holds for this amazing brand. And we welcome the co-founder, founder, I don't know what he goes by, Bob B.C. Carlson. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, boys. Good yeah. to be here. Dude, what an honor. Congratulations 
Uh, it, you guys just uh, had an anniversary, right? Yeah, we actually, we, we just finished celebrating our 25th anniversary. This last November, we just turned 26. Um, somewhere mid-month. Fucking yeah. by all accounts. Congratulations, man. Thanks, yeah. brother. That's Been a, a huge milestone. Huge. And especially in, in, in a technical side in any any business. I mean, yeah. From a baby to an adult. Yeah. Is what? <laughs> My whole life. I've really never done anything other than this. That's amazing. Amen. Yeah, it's and weird. We're in Arbor Collective. Yep. Flagship store. And office and yeah, HQ. HQ. Yeah. yeah. Every lab, the, the Fort Treehouse. Across the street from the beach. Yep. Venice, the, California. You got the mountains, you know, an hour you and a half away. You can see Baldy from our yeah. roof. Yeah. The Mecca. Yeah. You, can see the, you can see the break at the pier from our roof. So cool. And uh, for those of you that don't know and didn't hear, but Arbor is one of the best brands in skateboarding and snowboarding. Yeah, that's, and, that's where we play. And we make a line of apparel and we make some footwear and we make some accessories. And uh, we, we build stuff where we think we can, we can make a difference. If we can find a material and a, a path to production where we're going to lessen our impact on the planet, you know, a planet that's critical for all the things that we love to do, yeah. um, we, we'll, we'll, we'll play. But aren't you about to drop some news right now, too, about... Oh, about our Shaper series skates? Yeah! Yeah, we... Um, Let's get right to the punch. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, I love the linear, non-linear. Um, yeah, we just released our Shaper series, which is a surf skate, um, with part in partnership with Carver Skateboards. And the the history with that Carver's originally from Venice as well. Neil is a an old friend, a guy I've known almost for I think twenty five years. And when we launched our skateboards, we were playing around with widths and shapes and doing all sorts of crazy shit. A lot of stuff inspired by surf. And we couldn't find a truck with a wide enough hanger. And I found this, met this guy in Venice who had his own foundry in downtown LA and they were making trucks. And he was building his Carver truck, which is a truck that you can pump with your front, your pivot off your back foot, pump with your front foot and get a sort of the sense of just driving down the line. And um, he was making a standard truck for his, for the backside of the skate. And I ended up buying trucks from him for our skateboards. So we've been friends for 25 years, and his invention, which has been around for a long time, has now taken off, and he's really created his own category of skateboarding in the surf skate category. And um, we, you know, we approached that wanting to get involved. We love it. It's it's kind of true to our our roots in surf. And but how how do we do it? How do we come in not as Johnny come lately and do something different? Yeah. For us, it's about the materials that we use in the deck, all sustainably sourced woods. Um, natural top sheets, sustainable FSC certified maple. But how do we take it to the next level? And for us, that was that was going to a third partner in this this collaboration, um, and the in the shaper. And we have launched with a, a, both a Ryan Lovelace and a Tyler Warren shape. And in the pipeline is a John Wagner shape. And to me, it's a it's a complete story about why surf influences skate. It's a technology technology story. Carver, how can you make a skate pump like a surfboard? It's a story about sustainability and craftsmanship with wood, and that's what Arbor brings to the table. And it's a story about shape and the unique shapes that are needed when you're, when you're getting... Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. 
Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Surf performance out of a skateboard. Yeah. And guys like Tyler and Ryan um, and uh, um, John really allow us to pull it all together. Yeah. And these shapers, you know, are relatively new to the world of shaping. For I mean, sure. they've been doing it for a long time, but... As far as like name brands, they're they're the up and coming name brands. What what they what those guys mean to me is the out of the box thinking that that what we're doing requires. They, you know, it's not tried and true. It's what can we throw against the wall that can change surf? Yeah. What what can be done in in surf that hasn't been done, or what can be in the case of John? What can we bring back? Bringing back the idea of the 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 Hawaiian early Hawaiian sh- shapes, and really finding place lanes and surf that matter uh, that's that's what carver's doing with their trucks and their performance i think that's what we've been doing for 26 years now with materials and that's what these guys are doing with shape so it's it's about free thinking and the innovation that comes out of that yeah yeah it seems it seems like those, those guys are definitely free thinkers and, yeah. and they're not scared to test and nope. try something else and and more than ever, it's more accepted now than, you know, you used to get laughed out or clowned out, kind yep. of like, oh, what are you writing? Like, well, it's not traditional. It's not in line with what's cool. It's like, it doesn't matter. If I'm having fun and this works, and who yeah. cares? I mean, that's, for me, that's that means so much because when we started in the 90s, mid-90s, industry run by Gen X, yeah. where people are like, what are you talking about? Sustainable what? You know, environmentally friendly what? Well, you know, that's not cool. That's not core. That's soft as shit. And they're like, don't, you know. Yeah. And that's where that sort of idea that Arbor was that hippie brand. Chris and I were hippies. We were guys that surfed, skated, and snowboarded and loved the planet and saw it as, you know, something that we needed. People from our world needed to be more involved in sustainability. Yeah. Because we use the planet to do the things that keep us sane. Yeah. And so much of envir- the environmental movement was coming out of, you know, universities, academia, and not from the field. Um, so that... That, that sort of gauntlet that we had to run in the mid-90s to be accepted by snowboarding and skateboarding uh, around a conversation about sustainability, I see, I see the sort of new genre of surf shapers um, coming from, coming, having to run that similar gauntlet, and they've, they've done it. Yeah. And these are guys, that, but all three of them are guys that are opening minds and hearts um, to performance, new ideas on performance, and not just shaping, but art, um, these guys are pure artists. They're so versatile, um, and I, you know, it's Tyler. You know, to me, they're inspiring, and yeah. I think that's what this project has to be about. No, I love it because it's it's like the old and new mixture. You yep. know, these guys are, are are younger to the world of you know 
shaping, but they 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 look back and you know draw from the past yep. of the great shapers of, of the past, but they're the new names of the future. I mean, we're using that soap shape, <clears throat> Tyler's soap shape, and the way that this skate moves and the way you need to move on it requires that unique stubby width and your foot placement and the power you need to drive into this skate to get it pumping and to get it moving proper. You know, his thinking on shape was perfect for this. Um, and it's so out of the box. And, I, you know, like I said, it's nothing but inspiring. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, before yeah. we start talking more about today What's going on now, now, let's go back and, and Where'd ask you grow up? where BC, yeah. yeah. BC found the love of surfing. Um, I grew up in the Santa Monica Canyon in the 70s. I was born in 68, grew up in, uh, in, in the canyon. And it's cool, for me, the canyon was this sort of mecca of 70s surf shape. It was, it was really anchored by a, a surf shop that's unfortunately no longer around called Natural Progression, which had, it, had a location in Malibu and a location in the canyon. And um, this place was my, you know, my, my, my home away from home. Um, you know, I, I still remember how that shop smelled, the smell of wax, the smell of just surf, the colors. The ex exploration into color in the 70s it, at surf was like nothing else. And it was how, how old were you when you were introduced to natural progression? I mean, I was probably, you know, my parents were busy, working hard. Um, the canyon back then was more working class than it is today. I always tell people my, my best friend's dad was a plumber and worked hard and I you know it was different it was different days both my parents worked yeah and um, so I had a lot of free reign so I was going down to the beach all the time and going always going by NP and checking out what was new you know everybody had a new story about some wave that had just been discovered some place that had just been you know mastered um, and you know there there was there was a group of people in there that were innovating they were innovating around guns they were innovating around single fins they were innovating around shape and color, and it was just a fucking great place to be. That's cool. Um, and there was a sh there's a shaper there who I'm still friends with, a guy named Robbie Dick, and he he and my mom's boyfriend at the time actually designed the logo, so I you know I was lucky enough to know some of the, the people at the top, and he got brought me in there, and I got my first board, which was a a big old single fin way way wrong board for, for the break <laughs> at State Beach, a crumbly break, but I thought it was beautiful, this big red with a big S curve through it, um, single fin, gun, <laughs> and uh, I love that board, and it's the thing, one of the things that, you know, at some point in high school, my mom was like, this board's been sitting around forever, I'd moved on from that, and she gave it away or did something that kills me to this day. Ugh. Anyhow, Robbie was a really influential shaper back then, he still shapes, he's up in Oregon, although I hear he's moving back down, Robbie and uh, Jim Ganser and uh, Marty Sugarman. Jim Ganser of Jimmy Z's. Jimmy, Jimmy Z's. They were all canyon rats back then. Um, he didn't shape though, right? No, I don't think so. Well, he's just a surfer. He was designer. involved with Wilkinson surfboards. I don't. There's a there's a great history there. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a guy, there's a guy who owned Louver Drapes, whose kid was a surfer, and he funded this 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 sort of group of guys that were shaping and innovating, and he I think to this day. His son, he's long since passed away, so this is the only thing my dad ever lost money on. Uh, but a good a bunch of fast-talking surfers talked him into to funding a couple of brands and a couple of stores. And um, it was a really exciting time in surf, I think. And um, so, anyhow, that's that's where I grew up. And So was it your 
mom's boyfriend that introduced you to surfing? Yeah, okay. I mean it was it was my <clears throat> it was a place where all you did was go to the beach. Yeah, back then it was a safer times. Kids roamed free. Did yeah. you have any siblings or anything? I did. I have a younger yeah. brother and an older half sister. Okay. Um, and you know, so you you found yourself at the beach every day. Yeah. So my you know my world was about surf and uh, and then eventually about skate and you know so much of the influence of the Dogtown thing found its way up to the canyon and those guys were coming up and skating Paul Revere and um, you know I would I would go to the, to Revere I, I when you see shots of those guys skating the schools the playgrounds around the Bob hills was, here Bob was in the corner I'm one of the little fucking <laughs> toe-headed groms in the background just drooling watching just in total admiration yeah. of guys like Adams and Alva and yeah um, it, and so that was my world was that surf scene and that skate scene and I just it, you know it it it, it, it defined where my life was going to go, yeah. for we, sure. We, I love it that, you know, we're, we're bringing up another part of the coast that is so rich and influential, you know. And yeah. we've talked to people from San Diego and, and South Bay and, you know, uh, Dana Point and Honey, you know, all these little different subculture like zones and, and, and right here was another super rich. I have shots of Mickey Munoz surfing yeah. State Beach in the late 40s. And before Malibu opened up, you know, State Beach was a, an important place for surf. It's hard to believe it now because it's just a desert out there. But before they put the jetties in, mm. uh, which took the sand and pushed it out, um, there were rock reefs all the way along State Beach that you were famous for. You know, this great little beach break. Mm. Um, and when they, or Mickey tells me, when they used to uh, build the early teams, they would pick a point person from Malibu and they'd pick somebody from State who could surf a beach break. So they had a more um, you know, a complete threat uh, in their teams. And that heritage was still there. And, you know, the sand was growing. It grows every year. But there was still a little bump here and there through the 70s that, that you could pick up. And it was a fun place to be. It was yeah. a great place to, you know, be on your own, get in trouble, but not too much trouble. The parents at the beach were always looking out for kids. How would you get to the beach? Just walk. Walk. Walk or skate. Yeah. How far was it from where you lived? Um, you know, I lived pretty close when my parents were together when they split. And I was just farther up the canyon. Yeah. 20-minute walk, 15-minute walk. That's, that's great. I was lucky. Yeah. And that, but you would carry your seven-foot board. Carry my board. I don't think it was seven-foot, but it was... That was seven foot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hitchhike. Yeah. You know, all these little kids this board. We'd pick yeah. them up. Yeah, back then it was yeah, easy. Yeah, we'd just walk. We'd just yeah. walk barefoot. Yeah. You know? so was there a lot of... I remember in the summer, you used to, like, your pride was the calluses on your feet. Yeah. I never put shoes on in the summer. Never. So, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was an amazing place to grow up. It's funny because as they, they continue to build North Malibu and, and develop up the coast, the canyon has become more and more just a pass-through. Um, but when I was a kid, it, was, it wasn't a pass-through. People would still take PCH. And it was quiet, and it was a, a community unto itself. Yeah. So... Yeah. Who who is like your your little like you know crew like you know kids from school just kids in the neighborhood like kids from school um, the shop? my friend my friend Alex Drake uh, was a big part of my life his dad um, and Hoyle Schweitzer invented windsurfing no way and you'd go to their house and they would have they invented windsurfing they were the inventors of windsurfing Drake and Schweitzer and you'd go to his house 
he, they were engineers, they were aerospace engineers, and they worked at, you know, a lot of the people in the canyon were, were blue-collar and white-collar workers for aerospace. We Windsurfing used to have was... Invented in the Santa Monica Canyon. Shut the front door. Yeah. And they, they were surfers. And, and these guys surfed, and, and they, wanted to, they wanted to pick up on the wind and use the wind to power their surfboards. Um, his son, his older brother, Matt Drake, actually got people, invented the wind skate, which never took off. But yeah. you'd go over to their house, and they'd just be back from their you know trip to Baja. And what the heck? It was, it was, I think it was a pretty cool time in <clears throat> surfing because, you know, I, they, the, the magazines would come in in those days, and the, the cover image would be, you know, some guy going downwind on this beautiful, you know, rig, and his dog would be on the front of the board, and it just <laughs> looked so easy to do, and you wanted to try it. And I think when that, in, U, in the U.S., when windsurfing really took a downturn, it was, you know, inverted at Hukipa. And very cool, I will never try that kind of thing. Where, yeah. You know, and I think in action sports, we sometimes make it seem so rad and so unapproachable that we lose people. And I think that's what happened with, with windsurfing. Yeah. So Alex Drake was my buddy, my, my buddy Chris Madden, whose dad, again, was a hardworking plumber, great old school dude, fucking never let us get away with anything. Um, a guy named John Graham, uh, just a bunch of good Canyon Rat kids, all yeah. who love the beach. That's crazy. It's funny. I remember. I remember those days. Like we didn't have any money. We didn't. We just. We'd run around, and there were fruit trees everywhere. So if you were hungry, you knew where the apple tree was. You knew where the pomegranate tree was. You knew where you could get a giant juicy orange. Dude. And we just had. It was. It was a different time. Yeah. It's it's neat to reflect on how simple and cool life simple was right yeah. like yeah. such a contrast difference to what kids are growing up to these days there's something like 6,000 homeless people living in Venice today it's oh, um, nuts when I was a kid there was one homeless person up there and everybody knew him everybody watched out for him he was down on his luck vet and um, he was a good dude yeah and it was he was he was part of our community and our community took care of him um, yeah things have changed yeah so yeah. what was what was your your home break state beach? state beach yeah um you know, we'd go. I, you know, as it got better, I'd go surf uh, the jetty. Um, my the guy I started arbor with, Chris Jensen. Um, you know, at least in my mind, was a legend at first and second jetty. Um, then eventually, a little that's, bit. Of that's how you guys met. We met definitely met surfing, and then we went. To, we were in junior high together, and then we became great friends in high school. Hmm. Um, he, you know, he was a. I'd say he was one of my best friends in high school, and um, I, I went to the University of Colorado when I graduated. I, I spent a year traveling all over the South Pacific and Asia, just budget traveling, and I came back and went out and partied with him. And he had this, this is getting, jumping ahead. Yeah. That, that conversation led to yeah. the, the business that preceded Arbor and that eventually led to Arbor. Yeah, but you guys met when you were Grom surfing. Yeah, and he was, again, this is my mind. Um, so to all my friends out there, I, I always thought Chris was one of the most dominant surfers of our friends. and he. He could he could go, he could paddle out anywhere with confidence. And Topanga in those days was rough. Um, localism wise, localism wise. Yeah. And when and, and and when I mean rough, I mean drag you out of the water and get your ass kicked. Rough. Yeah. yeah. So you went there. You went there with with your fucking brain turned on, ready for anything. And he could he could get out there and surf his way out of anything. Yeah. And um, you know he and I eventually would. Trip, trips to Baja and, and just you know the, that life brings people closer um, you know and so yeah Chris and and a bunch of other, a bunch of other guys I mean I, I by no means was 
uh, was one of the good surfers at my high school. Yeah. But I had we're, the, we're I talking played. like late seventies, right? Mid to late seventies. Late no, mid seventies to mid eighties. I graduated yeah. high school in eighty six. Okay. So a really interesting time in surf. You know when the when the last vestiges of what came out of the sixties completely died, and everything changed in surf. You know, Robbie Dick, this shaper I was telling you about. He's got this legendary story about surfing First Point Malibu with no one out oh. on a Tuesday. Like, like go, you know, this is a place that was so important to the formation of surf in, in L.A. County and, you know, was so affiliated with longboards. And when, as he, you know, as the longboard thing just became kooky and that old man vibe and, 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 and people didn't longboard because it wasn't cool. There were days where that guy had it to himself. The, cra- so, the crowd diminished because yeah, the, it wasn't cool. The cr- I mean, on this particular Tuesday, yeah. the crowd disappeared, and he had it all to himself. And and Danny said, so, uh, Robbie, um, Robbie's story. Robbie and Danny Auberg, who wrote Big Wednesday, and Steve Peters, who designed that logo, uh, and Jim Ganser and Marty Sugarman. Their story is the story that's told in Big Wednesday. That, Shut the that's, fuck up. That's the that's Danny Auberg's story about his life. Wow. And um, Denny Auberg? Denny Auberg, yeah. He if you haven't seen Big, Big Wednesday? Wednesday in a while, watch it again. It's oh, I so love that movie. pure. Yeah. It's so good. And they really capture that transition, I think, from longboards to shortboards. Yeah. And how how, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just open minded anything goes. It was like, fuck you, you kook. Yeah. And um Well just that and the in the in the story of, you know, in search of the perfect wave. You know, like yeah. I mean, that has never, you know, it's still this day. We're, there's so many more waves to be discovered. and I'm just a garbage man. Yeah. It's crazy how um, there's a couple things I was thinking about when you were telling that story. You know, Malibu, you know, when you think Malibu and you think of longboarding and you mm-hmm. think of one of the Gidget highest. Beach Boys. Like, yeah, one of know, the, the, the highest points of surfing. Mm-hmm was that beach blanket bingo jan and dean Mm -hmm. you know ride 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 the wild surf and all those funky stupid gidget movies Mm -hmm. that elevated the lifestyle of surfing Mm -hmm. right and then you said it took you know it it kind of went away for a little bit and, and it was all like hippies it turned into hippies and alternative yeah. drugs or whatever you know what i mean like like that genre kind of took over and Which surfing was good, wasn't though, cool. because people that's yeah. that innovated shape that brought you know this you know this the the big tanks were never going to keep up with yeah. people's thinking on what you could do on a wave on a surfboard and that that every generation of that and that's yeah. and at arbor i really try to turn the pyramid upside down i gotta yeah. be at the bottom because it's every generation of new thinking about product design that yeah. keeps you relevant and if, if the old dogs had their way, nothing would ever change. Yeah. yeah. And Which, those, that next generation of shapers that came out through that hippie era changed surf forever in such a good way. Yeah. Because, like, you know, the, that movie, those movies, the Gidget movies, and then that movie, Big Wednesday, that kind of brought surfing back in the limelight. That and the, and the documentaries, you know, The Endless yeah. Summers, the, yeah. the, 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 you know, the, the fiction and the nonfiction. Yeah. You know, really, really... St- you know, really defined yeah. um, a, a total separate culture, yeah. um, an ever-evolving culture, but yeah. something that was separate. And most people who, without that content, would never understand what was happening. Yeah. 
on their coast. Yeah, we thought, we talked to David Nueva, who was one of the longboard dominant yeah. like players yeah. for forever, and when that transition from longboard wasn't cool and he was riding fishes and yeah. he didn't touch a longboard for like 10 years yeah you know isn't that crazy it's, it's crazy. so crazy and you you know because you you look back and you see all those iconic footage and, and pictures and everything yeah. and you're like oh yeah and he's like yeah i didn't longboard for like 10 years and then all of a sudden longboard came back and i'm like oh well, i guess i'll get back into longboarding and you're just like that's just <laughs> it's mind-blowing i think you know, I think that lasted up until the sort of Gen X generation where yeah. w the internet's just blown it out. Yeah. Like, like the surf shop and a few people at the top of the pyramid defined culture yeah. and defined what was cool and what wasn't cool. And it was such a narrow bottleneck that you had to get through to, be, to participate. But today, the internet gives people access to everything. Yeah. So there's just no more, do there's no more defining or dominating culture by a few people. Fuck yeah. that. The world... The wide world of everything is open to everybody. Yeah. And it's great for surf. It is. It's it's, it's a trip. It's what? great. It's great for skate. It's, it's great, great for, for business. Snow. It's great yeah. for everything. It's great for, it's great for life. Know, yeah, for sure. It's a trip what influences a trend and culture and what stays. Yeah. Right? And it's cool be it's cool because, you know, the longboard phase, the the single fin fucking, you know beaver tail phase you know the hippie phase the beaver tail out phase right so good it's just it's crazy to see when you look back at our surfing culture and history yeah how how like the up and ups and downs the trends and yeah. like it's wild how different it's become but then things that are true and authentic Still well, that's what place, I. That's yeah. what I, the internet allows us to go back and rediscover stuff that had been forgotten. Yeah, and um, and that's really important, I think, too. So that we don't lose these these parts of the these chapters of our history. And yeah. you know, anything goes right now. It's so fucking. Cool. I love it's such it. a great time to yeah. be doing shit. How, For sure. Okay, so you know, you, you're talking about Big Wednesday. Who's the guy again? Denny Auburn. Denny Auburn. Okay. And and, he, and I, I have this great story. I we we did a, our first collab was with Mickey Munoz. You know, legendary, one of the first guys out. And is he from Santa Monica area? He grew up in the Santa Monica Canyon. He grew up in the Rustic Canyon, which is a little part of Santa Monica Canyon. And he didn't move down to Orange County till it got blown out up here. Um, but he's from here. Uh, he, my, he, my dad's group of friends, he's part of that gr mm. crew. So I've known him for a long time. And your dad surfed too? My dad surfed a little. He, okay. mostly, mostly body surfing at... Um, oh God, what's the name of that beach? But he grew up on the beach in in, uh, in Santa Monica. Yeah. And um, you know, Mickey Mickey was the first person we ever collabed with. He was trying to get he was trying to bring his thinking on. He so he's a longtime shaper, um, one of the first guys to paddle out with Greg Knoll at Waimea. Um, uh, he was a ghost shaper for Hobie for years. Yeah. He shaped um, he shaped. Uh, Jerry Lopez's boards for years, yeah. and they're super tight. And when we um, when we interviewed Jerry years ago to talk about Mickey Munoz and this idea, this connection of surf to snow, um, uh, we touch on that in our in crossing the gray in the movie on the brand. I watched um, it again last night. Okay, <laughs> thanks, <Yeah. buddy. laughs> um, so good. It was so cool to I, I did that interview to have him come down and talk about Mickey, talk about his love of snowboarding and talk about um, the connection of snowboarding and surf and how he talks about, you know, there are moments in my snowboarding where, uh, you know, when I'm riding powder, 
where I don't even think about surf. I don't miss it at all. Yeah. And, you know, his movement moves. Marsh says that all the time. It, yeah. I mean, it is. <laughs> the fluid dynamics between, fluid dynamics and powder dynamics are so similar that it's easy to lose yourself in that turn. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, when I interviewed him, he talked about filming uh, um, Big Wednesday. Big Wednesday. And he talked about they had, they had governments all to themselves. They, 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 they filmed it up at, you know, north of the ranch. Yeah. And they had the whole place to himself. And they they would they would just laugh you know none of the crew not a lot of the crew didn't surf you know and they would go home they they'd wrap it at, at you know just before sunset and they'd have a couple of hours of the break to themselves he's like we'd peel off a couple of extras and camp there all night and it was just that two three weeks of filming were some of the best days of my life that's crazy uh, yeah. that's such him and Denny that, alone. The yeah, extra alone. perks yeah yeah and I know it's I, there's there's a there's a history behind Big Wednesday that's really meaningful for this world of surf. Yeah. Um, when did right that come out? To the film, yeah, I want to say it came out in the early '80s. Early '80s. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then Fast Times maybe, was maybe maybe. God, I should know, but it's just always been part of my life. So, um, Fast Times was right in that that zone too. Yeah. And North Shore was. Yeah. A little bit after, after later, right? Yeah. But like, talk about surf movies that, you know, when when they first come out, you're like, how stupid is that? How mm-hmm. hokey is that? And but now you look back and like, fuck, those are the best surf movies. Big Wednesday you know, for they me. Become like Big cult, Wednesday is cult amazing. Classic. Yeah, cult classics and but a really good depiction of what life was like. I think Big Wednesday nails it for sure. Nails it. Se- 1978. Okay, released. Okay, so and such a great movie. Perfect. Yeah. But like even even like Fast Times, right? Like mm-hmm. it was what was going on. Yeah. But it, during that yeah. time and North Shore for how comedic that movie was, yeah. that's how it was. It's just little moments of insight into something going on that maybe you didn't participate in. Yeah. And I think it drew for better or worse, it drew a ton of people to surf. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. we talk about all the subcultures within mm-hmm. surf or, you know, pretty much any sport. And you, you brought up, like, you know, the hippie era, like, in the in the 70s and a yeah. party. And then Big Wednesday, Wednesday comes out and it's, like, these, you know, good-looking, like, beach, like, ripped, like, athletes, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And then you go to a few years later in the 80s and you got Spicoli. And, the, yeah. you know, like, there's so many little nuances you could you could draw from there was yeah. a million ways to call people a kook yeah yeah <laughs> barney yeah. excuse me mr Hammond. when are you gonna stop calling me barney yeah. barney <laughs> when you're not, I'm a, not barney. a barney barney yeah. that's so good <laughs> oh, Jesus. but yeah i mean the, the 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 history and the culture up here and you're you know living it as i mean yeah venice is for me venice is a really important part of it you know i as soon as i as soon as, as soon as i started having a little bit more free reign we were skating down to venice because it was just a mystery, yeah. crazy, you know, place full of just smells and colors and people. And I, I yeah, I've been, I've been coming down to Venice since I was, you know, I got got to be the, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade. Um, and as soon as we could drive, we would come down here. Uh, and and this is this this has always been my home away from home here. Yeah. And when I graduated, got out of college, got came back, and Chris and I decided to start a business. Um, this is where I moved. So um, go back to when you, like Venice has always been a, a kind of like an epicenter for culture. Venice, more than people even know, it's a, it's a beach town that is, 
that's also got this sort of design aesthetic and innovation aesthetic, or I don't know if that's it, innovation core. You know, this is where this is where the Eames family developed their furniture. Shut the fuck up. So door. the Eames family, you know, they came out of World War II, they they invented bent plywood. And this is such a cool story that hasn't really been told. They did it the to, to, family to create leg braces. So if you got shot in the leg, they could brace your leg and get you to a hospital. Well, after World War II, they, they came back. They moved to Venice. They, they have, actually have a house in the Santa Monica Canyon. Their office was on Abikini. And they invented this high-end bent plywood furniture that they're so famous for. Yeah. But that evolved to be this affordable way to produce furniture. Yeah. I mean, think about the chairs you sat on in elementary yeah. school, all bent plywood, bent plywood seats and bent plywood backs. Yeah. When the skate industry first started going, we've got to move away from the tail block and we've got to find a way to put concave um, and kicktails in our boards. They went to those furniture manufacturers that were bending plywood to make the first modern skate. And all of that innovation and all of that thinking happened here in Venice. What the fuck? Um, this, is where, this is where Dale Velzi invented, just down the street from here, he had a shop here on the corner, and he invented the foam, uh, as far as I know, it invented the foam core for surf. Um, not Grubby Clark and Hobie? Nope. Wow. Not, not as I've heard it. Dale Velzi, th- this, is, this is how I've heard the story. It was Dale Velzi, probably working with Grubby, um, came up with the concept of creating the foam core. And he did it here in Venice. Wow! This is where Carol Shelby did all his stuff, and that and all you know. Who's Carol Shelby? Carol Shelby. Car? If you ever watch. Oh, Shelby uh, Car. You watch Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah, or Ferrari versus Ford. Yeah. He's the guy that that they turn to to take the Ford to the next level, and because the, the Shelby cars that he was building were so innovative at the time, and he was doing that here in Venice. Fiberglass. Uh, yeah. It was all about the engine performance. Okay. Um, and he's. So this has always been a place where people kind of think outside the box. Yeah. This is a, you know, it's obviously got huge roots in, in surf and skate, uh, if you've seen any of the Dogtown stuff. Um, but you talked about the melting pot of, you know, kind of blue, white collar and all these engineers working for the yeah. aerospace industry yes. right here in L.A. And yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you could see it all coming together. Just the thinking. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I am, you know, I, I love that. We're not, we're even the first snowboard brand here, Hazmat Snowboards. Donald and Mike, um, and... They were before you? Yeah, Hazmat, Hazmat <laughs> was here breaking trail for us. Wow. There was another brand called Family Snowboards that was over in, off Glencoe. And so it's, it, Venice has got this root in, in early, early snow. Um, and, and that's why, you know, we stand here on a, some, some really gnarly shoulders. And I, you know, I always try to remember that. Yeah. Um, we're very lucky to have all of that inspiration going into what we do at Arbor. So, so did, you, did you grow up going to the mountains and skiing like I as did. a kid? Yep, okay. I did. And, uh, you know, Mammoth Bear, I, there was a, used to be this ski club that would pick you up at First Jetty yeah. in the parking lot. Your parents would drop you off at 6 in the morning. You'd be at the mountain Last by 8. ticket, you know, the whole Everything. Packet, yeah. Just dump your kid on the bus. Um, it was all kids. It was fucking mayhem. And they'd dump you off at the mountain, and you could just go ski all day. And so I would go every weekend, and um, it's called Blizzard Ski Club. And uh, he just fell in love with snow. We'd go to Snow Valley. And with my parents, we'd go to Mammoth. And um, when snowboarding happened, uh, it just was, it was obvious. I mean, it, it was obvious it was going to happen. Um, and people had, had been, it's, it's a lot, people have been thinking a lot more about s- surfing snow 
for a lot longer than people even realize. There's a family in Chicago um, that st- made this what's called the Vicklin sled that when they saw the articles in the newspaper in Chicago about the Hawaiians coming over on the West Coast and demonstrating the Hawaiian art of surfing, which was a huge news story across the country, they immediately thought, we can actually make a wooden sled that you could stand up on and surf the snow. And they did that, and they made a couple of them. Actually, a friend of mine has one here in Venice. And uh, people were snowboarding on mountains, on hills in Chicago, on little local parks. This is in like the early 50s, 40s, 50s. Way way before the snurfer? Way (laughs) before the snurfer. And then Sherman Poppin came in with the idea of the snurfer. Uh, you know something the thrill of skiing but the skills of snowboarding or skills of, of surfing which was yeah. his thing and the snurfer surfing snow um, and then Jake tried to t- Jake Burton really wanted to take that to the next level and create a performance oriented snurfer and, and Tom Sims was out here uh, kind of jumping over the idea of snurfing thinking about how do we how do I skate and surf mountains and so it's this it's this long thing so it was really it was any, anybody who surfed as soon as you started hearing about the modern snowboard and the performance that was available, you immediately had to be part of that. And all of my friends, we all of them went in on a a, a, a snowboard together. Wow! <laughs> like, Both this snowboard together and took turns hiking. You didn't have to share your Sorels, did you? <laughs> well, you, you, know, you know, you didn't have to share your Sorels. I, I, my first boots were fake Sorels, actually. Yeah. Um, knockoffs. Knockoffs. Um, Anyhow, yeah. so that's that, and that so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Colorado to go to college, because um, I wanted to be out there. And I wanted to be snowboarding. Mm. So going back to surfing and you venturing out to Venice mm-hmm. for the whatever culture culture nightlife. Yeah, like this was the spot to hang out when you were. You know, I didn't come down here to surf. I came down here to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> I came down here to get away from, you know. The small town of... Get away from my family, yeah. you know, just get away. My parents got a divorce. Things were tough at home. Um, I just was on an adventure and looking looking to have fun. Um, Girls. Yeah, right? And it was just it was this weird down here and great in every way. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's some, you know, legendary spots here. Um, for Especially when I was a little kid. I mean, when I was a little kid, the POP Pier was still up. I remember driving by and going, Mom, what's that? Why can't we go there? We're shut down. Mm. She'd always say, "We can't go there. They shut it down because somebody died. Their roller their roller coaster car released, and they went flying into the ocean." Oh my I don't know if that's true, but yeah. that's why she told me they had closed the this amusement park. And um, you know that was that was more Dogtown, more South Santa Monica. But Venice had its spots and still has its spots. And yeah. again, very localized. Um, it, it's such a trip when you know when I think of Venice and like look at old think about old articles or photos or video yeah how a circus this place is and was and will always be you know like the dudes roller skating that dude playing the guitar with the turban on harry carey harry carey and and like gold's gym or or world's gym that 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 was another just innovative people thinking about working out in all sort of different ways outdoors yeah and then you have you know roller skaters I don't know what it is about this place, but yeah. it is a place where people come to invent yeah. and to create. Well, you, you know, you got Hollywood and, and, and downtown yeah. and right there, and, you know, you get the same kind of wildness yep. and, and Hollywood, but here you're <laughs> at the beach, and it kind of 
you know, it makes sense to funnel out. It's different. Know? It's different. I, I love it. It's yeah. been a very good place for Arbor to be based. Yeah. Um, it's a trip because of the diverse cultures, you know, black, Latinos. Yeah. Um, and you had skateboarding. And what's cool is like skateboarding, you know, is born out of surfing, right? Yep. And I think the the ethnicity different ethnicities were introduced to skateboarding faster than yes uh, skateboarding is the ultimate sport because you don't need the surf to be good you don't need to buy a wetsuit you don't need to get in your car you don't need to have a car to get in the car to go chase surf or a lift ticket or car to chase car and gas money to chase good snow you can open your door walk outside and do it for free anytime anywhere on anything and um to me, that's that sort of agrarian nature of skateboarding, and it is accessible to anybody. Yeah. Made it the most diverse of all our sports, yeah. economically, culturally, whatever. And that's a really great part of the world of action sports, and it's pushing, has been for a while now, pushing over to surf and over to snow. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, skate has always been, yeah. and it was always, always reflected in the world of skating around Venice. Um, a, a different kind of diversity. Yeah, but like in any sport, like you're going to have the competitive, you're going to have the technical side. But you know, going back to you mentioned earlier about how influential like skate was because of surfing. When you're not mm-hmm. surfing, you'd want to you know con- cross crossover concrete surfing whatever pump, and it relates to the mountains. But like, but I think I think so. The, there there were guys skating. Um, you know, Danny Baird and the Hilton Brothers. There were a bunch of guys skating really seriously here way before the Dogtown guys, but the dog, these are guys that were doing just that. They yeah. were guys who first and foremost wanted to surf. Yep. And this was a crossover activity. And they were doing shit, they were bombing hills, they were starting to think about tricks, but it wasn't until the, the you know, what happened at the Zephyr Surf Shop, and that and those guys became pure skaters. Yeah. Who also surfed, but skateboarding was a standalone thing to them. And that's the, Im- the innovative moment for me, that where it became standalone. Yeah. And... When we were coming down here, um, you know, that's that's what was influencing our skateboarding. Um, and when we were chasing those guys up to Kenner and Paul Revere and um, and watching those guys skate and skate when they when they left the field, you know, going out and skating and trying to trying to reduplicate their lines, um, that was all about skating. It wasn't about sidewalk surfing anymore. Yeah, yeah. It was the moment that skateboarding became its own thing. Um, that must have been um, really pivotal in 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 your life watching like to, watching jay adams skate yeah as a kid live um it was just for, he he to me was the coolest person i had ever met um, or and ever known and uh bigger than life bigger than life cooler yeah, than raw, life super just, cool but raw and just ballsy ball, yeah. like yeah like and he you know and and yeah you know, tony was was hollywood and and you know, good on him. He, you know, he made it work for him. But, but Jay was, Jay was just real, super authentic. Um, I saw Stacy Peralta skate. I saw, I saw all that as a kid. Yeah. And you know, it's amazing how watching somebody do something you love so well and with such power and style and grit um, can change your life. Yeah. And that definitely true for me. So. That's and that's crazy. it, folks. We're done. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so going back to yeah. surfing, yep. um, where where else did you start going? Like, I mean, for me, it was 
you know, I did you hear we, about trestles and go fuck? We got yeah, we trestles. went to trestles, but we used to go to Baja. We get my friend, my friend, we went, when he we got his first car, a little black Volkswagen bus. We would tell each other's parents that we were staying at each other's house and literally go to Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, like, like sixteen. I guess yeah, he he had a learner's permit. It must have been sixteen. But going to Mexico, into another country, places that weren't that safe. No. And not, and our parents had no idea. We were in another, in, another fucking country. And you didn't surfing. need anything, like yeah. you yeah, know, driver's in, license or We'd go to Cuatro Casas and just be in heaven. And um, we'd surf, you know, K-38, and we'd surf, uh, um, um, God, we'd camp everywhere. And then his cousin got a, a house, uh, not a house, he got a, a, a trailer on just a little cement pad at Los Rocas. <laughs> and we'd go down there and we thought we were so cool. And, uh, um, you know, I remember this place was so full of mosquitoes, so disgusting, but we couldn't have been happier. Yeah. And we'd surf and drink. Yeah. It's funny how you, you literally cross the border and it's it's a different country, but it's so fucking. I mean, we did different. not look. Yeah. I mean, we were two baby faced kids. We did not look like we should be crossing the border into right, Mexico right. solo. Yeah. Like, yeah, you could get taken advantage of so easy and not not know and get in trouble oh, yeah. so we easy. But all you're thinking is waves. A legendary story of having the tent opened, you know, by a federale in the middle of the night with his M16, you know, looking in the tent, but opening the tent flap with his gun. Yeah. Um, fun fun days. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering if my kids should listen to this. Yeah. We're scoring waves, <laughs> drinking beer, we're 16. But, no, but how, how, <laughs> how adventurous and like raw and it was great. What an exhilarating It was feeling. great. It was great. I mean, I, what is it that makes it so you you can jump off ledges? What You take chances in life. Um, you got to take some chances as a kid and get away with it or or, or not get away with it. Get yeah. arrested and, and, you know, get smarter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was lucky enough to grow up I, I don't know if it was lucky because there were some tough times again my parents tore their family apart and I uh, I, I took advantage full advantage of that but it was there were some rough times there but I I was able to take a lot of chances um, and build some confidence yeah grow up were you, grow were you up. good yeah. in school no 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 my I remember graduating all my friends were going off to four-year colleges and um, I uh, just didn't have the grades barely graduated um, and I what, went. I what went were your down. interests? Sorry. I, well, my interests were surfing. I, I moved. <laughs> I moved to Orange. I moved to Newport, and uh, with a bunch of friends, and got a place uh, at the River Jetties, right across from Frog House. Um, and spent my told my dad I was going to go to college. I signed up for Orange Coast College, um, and my plan was just to surf and have a great time. Um, and I, you know, I amazingly, I had this one teacher, this English teacher. It was a writing class. Can I stop for a yeah. second? What What was your first job? I was had a paper route. Yes. Those were a thing. I had a paper route in the Santa Monica Canyon. You know, pumping <laughs> up hills with two bags of paper. Oh. Um, and on at six in the morning on Saturday, because you had to. It was an evening paper, but in, you had to get a. You had to get uh, on Saturday. It was a morning paper. So that you, the sun wouldn't even be up. You'd be folding newspapers. You had to fold. They drop the newspapers off in a stack. You had to fold them, put them in the in your bag, your saddlebags, on your handlebars, yeah. and, and then hope go it deliver. didn't rain. You had to put them in this in this the plastic sleeves. And if you missed, <laughs> and like it didn't go into their house, you, they'd call you up and go, you you know you you this person didn't get their paper. Hustle on over there and get them one. Um, and then I pumped gas in high school. I was a busboy for a while, and I pumped gas at this gas station in the canyon that sold 104 octane gas and. Um, 
all the hot rods are cruising. Yeah, there's a whole other story to this this thing. It was a front for a different business. Uh-huh. So the pumping of the gas was just a just what? a thing. What yeah. business? So me and my friends, it's got Amos Newman, Randy Newman's kid, and uh, Randy myself. Newman that's, that yeah, and wrote and, I Love L.A. Yeah, and okay. and Kirk Kretschmer. We just this was our clubhouse. We had so much fun there. And, and the people that would come in to buy this expensive gas, <laughs> it was nuts. So I'd pump gas for a while and... Uh, what, what was the business? You can imagine. Some yeah. things were being sold. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It a, was, a gas station was a front for... I, I feel like that was... Heather, the, the Chevron station down the street, I, I, you could go in there and use your Chevron card and buy, buy an eighth. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was damn expensive gas. Yeah. <laughs> Mom, can I borrow the, the Chevron card? I got to fill it up. Hey, we could get away with that now with gas filling up your tanks at 100 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Not back then. So, yeah, uh, shit. Um, where, where did you bust tables? At this Italian restaurant in the Palisades. Not know, the Chart House? I was hoping to hear not, the Chart House. Not the Chart House. Gladstones was the, like kind of the legendary spot. Yeah. But uh, yeah, my, all my friends and I like finagled our way into the busboy jobs. Um, Which is, by the way, a perfect job for is, a surfer. Okay. And, it is you know, the cruising is job. Surfers, you clean snowboard. up dirty shit. You you know you had to wash a lot of dishes. Yeah. I I, I I you know I think. But you got your day. You got you your got freedom your day. for the day. Yeah, and I and I those those jobs. I'm not sure kids are doing those kinds of jobs anymore. Yeah. And it, it's a bummer. It, yeah, it really taught you the, the ethic. Yeah, the work, work ethic. ethic. Yeah. Humility. Yeah. Nothing is beneath me, yeah. and I, um, you know, I've tried. I think every job that I've asked anybody to do at Arbor that that I can do. I mean, some of our artists have skills that I don't have. But I have done, and and did for a long time. Um, and willing, being willing, not ever seeing anything beneath you is is really important. Yeah, life yeah. awareness. Yeah. So no, yeah. I think all those you know menial tasks and it makes you appreciate what you get to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, and getting that paycheck was 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 really yeah. important at a young age. And and as you know, I, I didn't have parents that gave, gave me anything other than what I needed. So as I had other interests. Um, and as we needed gas money and we needed beer money and we needed, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. did, did you I ever, had my own money. Did you ever have uh, organized sports in your life or no? I played a little football. Okay. Um, and then I, I broke my broke my arm um, on my XR250 going up to see my girlfriend in Topanga, riding from the gas station. I just pulled the whole exhaust system up, cleaned it up, painted it. And I was riding, riding up on PCH I had split the lines at the bottom of the canyon and was in front of all the cars I took off so I was way ahead of the pack and I was right in front of First Jetty and I was looking at the surf and I turned back and this guy there used to be a bar called the Sunny Spot on the right hand side of PCH this guy pulled out stopped in the fast lane of the northbound traffic to turn south and as he was waiting for a gap to turn in I had turned to look at the surf turned back got about seven feet of rubber down and uh Hit him right in the side, flew thirty feet through the air, um, and uh, wrecked my wrecked my my wrecked a whole year. Oh, wow! A long time in the hospital, and they rebuilt me. I still have the scars, and uh, just a broken arm to though? show it. Oh, I was bleeding internally. I had yeah. cuts all over my body. I I fortunately didn't grind across the cement. I kind of arced over and just landed like a stake hitting the <laughs> cement. <laughs> <laughs> The funny story is that... So you didn't break it I didn't show up at my girlfriend's house at the time, and and she called my dad, and he had just heard from the hospital that I had been in a really bad accident. She ran outside, fell down her stairs, and broke her ankle. (laughs) 
perfect couple. I'm in, I'm in the ICU, like barely hanging on, and I look over, and they're rolling her in in a wheelchair. Like, sorry. Could you get a ride? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Crazy. So I played a little, I played a little football. I was Tell me you married her. I didn't. Yeah. I wonder where she is, though. Um, but no helmet back then, right? I like, had My dad was a stuntman, okay. so I had helmets, That's and he great. always wanted me to wear I was in board shorts. I was on slip-on vans, no socks, and a t-shirt. August day, oh. and an open face bell helmet. Mm. And that saved my life. I, I, for years, had it, and it had a gouge like this big out of it. Um, or a chip or whatever. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, that saved my life. Crazy. And this is the exact spot where um, a guy who I went to high school with who, um, had just been in a terrible accident um, and was had, had brain damage, was never the same again. It's, yeah. It, I mean, it was not... You, you didn't know. learn from his... I, and I had no driver's license. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Don't listen to this yeah. kid. It's not a laughing yeah. matter, but <laughs> fuck. Kids. Yeah. Do, yeah. do, do as you say, Turn. not as I do, or what yeah. is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I made. I learned a lot of hard lessons. Yeah. yeah. I learned a lot of hard lessons, and I'm trying very hard to convince my kids to listen to some of those lessons and not have to learn them the hard ways yeah. with uh, some success. Yeah. I mean, that's life. Success. I mean, you got to... Sometimes it's... Tough love, or it's just you got to learn and, and go through the pain yourself. You know, family's important. <laughs> I uh, I had a family that, that blew itself apart, um, and parents that didn't like each other, so didn't work well together, didn't co-parent well together. Yeah, and that left a lot of freedom to do a lot of dumb shit. Yeah, and learn a lot of hard lessons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, divorce can lead to latchkey kid, but. There was no latch and there was no key. Right. I led to a wide open door kid. Yeah. And, um, but it's kind of what you needed. I survived it. Yeah. I survived it. I built my confidence. I, I learned, I, I learned what I could get away with. Um, and, you know, I built a certain amount of huevos that allowed me to believe with no reason to believe it. Because <laughs> yeah. I had never been a rep. I'd never worked in a, in a surf shop or a skate shop or a snowboard shop. I fucking love snowboarding and I love skateboarding. And I had it, and I had the balls to think that I could do it. Um, when if I had known anything about the industry, there's no way. If I knew what the pitfalls that lay ahead, and the pain, and the suffering, and the sleepless nights that were gonna, were to come, I never would have started Arbor. All right, so yeah. go back to living in Newport Beach. Yeah, Newport surf, and then you take a class in college. Oh yeah, I, t- I just I took this class, and this lady, um, <clears throat> it, like. It was a writing class, and this lady got me writing. And I was always a good talker, and I figured out how to write like I talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I learned how to uh, to put thoughts down on paper in an organized way. And I was that kid who could get an A on a paper and a C or a D on a test and make my way through school. And I and I I, I realized that hey, maybe school is for me. And I got my shit together. Um, and I ended up transferring to the University of Colorado because I wanted to snowboard. And um, I made it through, got it done. And, you know, college is an interesting thing. It's not for everybody. And today, the, the money that it costs and the debt that you come out of college with is rough. But the sense of, of, of uh, you know, for me, meeting other people, learning about other people, getting out of my bubble in Southern California. Boulder was a great place because people came from all over the world to go to school there, all over the country, meeting meeting people who thought differently, getting into a different environment, thought, you know, living in the snow and, and um, um, was really important to me. And yeah. it gave me a chance to snowboard, you know, as much as I wanted. 
What's uh, we interviewed this doctor, uh, Doctor Sonny Rubin, and his his um, what is it? Met School of Medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he applied to different places, but he found this one that was in the Mediterranean or uh, Caribbean. Yeah. And what's crazy is like he wasn't the best student. Yep. Like he had to fucking like study. Yep. And a lot of times he would still fail, even though he studied really hard. Yep. But going to this beautiful, he's a surfer, going to this beautiful place that had waves, mm-hmm. his mind, like, flourished. Yeah. You know, and, and here you are talking about wanting to be a snowboard, you know, wanting to snowboard and, and going there, and that probably helped you. I'm sure I've got some ADD. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? Like I'm, I'm 100%. The exactly surroundings know. helped you. The, get, get some I, of that. Figuring out how to study and having the, the attention to study and, and do homework was always rough for me. Yeah. But, you know, being in the mountains and, and uh, clearing your head and, and putting your thoughts together and, and taking some time walking away and coming back to it, writing a paper for me, and it, yeah. it, to this day I still write all the copy and um, oh, cool. put, put the words together that define how we tell the stories of Arbor. So yeah. what did you go to school for? Journalism? Or? I ended up going for communications. Okay. And what was your aspirational career and job? You know, the funny thing is somebody just reminded me that when I was a kid, I used to say, I want to start, a, I want to own a business. Um, and I probably wanted to own my own business because that made you could make your own hours. You didn't have to shave. You could wear whatever you wanted. Yeah. Um, but I always you thought I would. And that's, when you want to skateboard. Yeah, yeah. Freedom. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure that's what was what the sort of genesis of that. But I, I wanted to be my own boss. And I wanted well, to. What, I wanted to work with people. Communications who I is not the the route to be your own boss, really, though. No, right? communications was the route to getting out of school as fast as possible. <laughs> um, Amen. But but again, it was a it was a place where I had to stand up, yeah. and do speeches and speak in front of people, learn to get confident, which is talk. really important. Yeah, and I had to write. I had to write constantly. I mean, I think I wrote a uh, my last paper for this this for that ma- that. That undergraduate degree was like an eighty-page paper. I mean, Jesus, that's about 80. eighty pages, and so, I wrote and I wrote it about the environment. I wrote it about the sort of where global warming and the ozone hole and deforestation all intersect because I was a huge environmentalist. And when did you uh, get into envir- environmentalist? Well, I think I think this is important because I think that why you know Arbor is the first action sports brand founded specifically to focus on the environment you know that's something we're really just talking about today we haven't really waved that flag but yeah it really is and you know we folk we, we we talked about sustainability in our first catalog so why was it such a big deal to us but not the the generations that came before us and I think it's because Chris and I came out of this this generation of kid where the, the conversation about environmentalism had moved off the protest field, mm. you know, that led to Earth Day and that and the movement, no nukes and the marching and all that that happened, it had moved into the schools. So I I, I was I was hearing about the environment in school, uh, and I think we were the first generation of kids to be taught, hey, there's a problem. And also on TV, there was media finally coming about out of, around the environment. Jacques Cousteau, Wild Kingdom. Um, so, you know, the things, shows that I was watching. Woodsy the Owl. Woodsy the Owl. <laughs> wow. Hey, what is it? Smokey yeah, the Bear. So, so, the, so the commercials, too. And so I think we're the first kid that hit the business world that had an awareness of what was going wrong. And then you add to this, this love of the mountains, this love of the, the ocean, this love of the outdoors. Um, it was, 
obvious that and 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 when I got to Colorado, I you know that love of the environment turned into a theme that I I wrote about and and used as an interest of mine as I was uh, you know picking topics to write about and speak about. And there's a lot more tree huggers in Colorado than there is anywhere else. <laughs> I, I was t- there were tons of tree huggers, and I was at home, and I was that interest was welcomed by my teachers. Um, I still have letters that I wrote to senators about stopping the deforestation of old growth redwood forests. I still, I was, I was completely and still am completely passionate about the need to protect the, the outdoors. Yeah. And you, you graduate and your buddy, Chris, so I graduated, I graduated, I worked for the summer, saved as much money as I could and I took off. Yeah. I spent a year backpacking around Asia and the South Pacific, you know, just by yourself. I've, I've traveled with, a, I went, started in Asia with one friend, uh, and then I met another friend in Australia, and we bought a 1969 Chrysler Valiant and drove 7,000 miles around the country. You know, in Australia? In Australia. Wow. You know. What, so you went to Asia first? Yeah, I went to, so we went to, I went to Japan and met him, and then we went to Thailand, Nepal, uh, uh, India. Just backpacking, back to Thailand, hitchhiking. Yep, just backpacking, living in guest houses, like backpackers. Living, you know, there's a point in Nepal where I was living on less than a dollar a day. I did the Annapurna Sanctuary Trek. I did the, I did the circuit, Annapurna circuit. Um, with the board and without, just finding the beach. Just there? this is just up in the mountains, yeah. hiking oh. in the Himalayas. Wow. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, just, just you and your backpack and your yeah. buddy and. Um, and this is your when you graduated. This is when I graduated. Okay. Yeah. And then we went to <clears throat> Thailand and uh, in Malaysia, and, and we split up. Uh, we went to no Indo, went through Indo, and then he he uh, w- wanted to keep going in Indo, and I took a flight from Timor down to Australia and met another friend, and he and I bought a car and drove all around Australia from the Twelve Apostles, Bondi, everything, all the places you'd ever want to go. It's a fucking dream trip. Yeah. Did you surf? I surfed, hiked, did it all, partied, had Damn. the best time. It was life changing, um, and then went to New Zealand, and then I went to to uh, Fiji, Cook Islands, Hawaii, home. Dang! Did you document it all on eight grand? That's awesome. And and That's ten months, twelve flights, months, like twelve months, twelve flights, months, food, everything. Yeah. And were your were like were your parents tripping? Like, hey, you should save that money and do something with it. Were no, your friends, my parents no? weren't actually. They were totally supportive. Yeah, they were hundred hey. percent supportive. Go go I, celebrate. I guys. remember when I came back, I didn't tell anybody. I surprised my mom. I almost gave her literally almost gave her a heart attack. <laughs> I'm alive. I'm here. I'm back then it was like you know a postcard here and there. Maybe yeah, there, there maybe were no cell phone phones. Card, there were nothing. no nothing. Yeah, nothing. It, was, it was all no internet. No computers. You, it was, you couldn't even really call because you know in some of these places the phone services were so different. Yeah. 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 It was postcards. Yeah. A lot of postcards. <laughs> <laughs> Hello from Nepal. Um, yeah, and so that was pretty formative. And, and, and when I came back, I was came back through L.A., and that's where I ran into Chris, yeah. um, and you know, who's an old high school friend. And uh, he had been talking to this. He was dating this guy's daughter, Tatsinda. Um, and this guy had this huge piece of land on Maui, Selling wood, right? No, well, he was actually growing weed. Yes, fucking awesome. Maui, 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 Maui. This is the guy that he would swear that he coined the term Maui Wow. Yeah, I bet. I swear to God, I won't say his name, but um, he was this kind of larger than life character. He lived up Olinda Road, and 
And uh, Chris is like, look, man, this guy is taking the dead koa out, windfall mm. or standing dead trees out of this forest, and he's using the money to kind of fix the forest up, get the get the unindigenous plants and animals out, because the you know ever since the Polynesians got there and brought pigs over, and then a white man got there and brought brought goats and cows, all that went feral and moved up into the into the highlands, um, and ornamental plants like strawberry guava, it's just decimated the ecosystem of the Koa forest of Hawaii. And this guy cared about his land, and he wanted. It was eventually his plan was eventually to sell it or donate it to the Haleakala National Park, which he did um, when he retired. And he fixed the land up uh, while he was doing it. And for some reason, God knows why, he picked Chris to sell the wood. Chris was a surfer. He was over there surfing and partying. He had no connection to the wood industry. Yeah. Did he, that guy surf? He was just a hustler. I don't know if David surfed. Um, huh. uh, he, but, but, you know, Chris was just a hustler. He's like... You know, this, this kid's smart, and, you know, maybe he can sell the wood on the mainland. And um, over there, over there, the koa wood is, is defined by this sort of underground industry that's there. It's like gold. Yeah. And people see it as gold. But it's not easy to sell gold if you don't know the, what, how, what the, the get gold is. industry works. Yeah. So I had gotten there, and Chris had gotten his first container of logs over of this sustainably sourced... I mean, they were using so, helicopters to take the dead logs out of the forest so that no roads would have to be built, so the forest would be completely preserved as they started pulling out this valuable product that they could sell um, and raise money to put money back into the forest to help restore this environment by getting rid of the, the animals and putting up fences. That's an expensive so process. Chris was. was dating his daughter. He was. And the the dad Dave, Dave thought he was a smart kid. Yeah, I guess. Was there already? Was he already selling the koa wood to other places, or he was selling it locally? They were milling it into lumber, and he was selling it in Hawaii. But he knew that the that there was more money to be made if he could get over to the mainland. Yeah, and he again. So he picked Chris, and Chris had brought his first container over. I think it just kind of sat, and and he had a partner that. They had gotten into a fight and argued over the wood, and they had met some people in the industry. Um, and when I showed up, Chris is like, "Look, dude, you got to do this with me. And you got, you know, we're gonna go to Hawaii and surf all the time. We're gonna be up in the mount, up in the mountains, you know, riding helicopters up to go and get these sustainable logs out. And you know, me, I'm an environmentalist. I want to, I want to go to Hawaii and surf. I want to go over there and have a good time. I dropped all my plans to go back to Colorado on the spot." It took me. It took me. I think two years to get back and get my stuff out of storage in Colorado, and I and I ended up just dropping everything to help him run this business that we called Coalition. And Coalition was Coalition. K O A Coalition. Yeah. Coalition. Coalition was our effort to sell this sustainable wood uh, to the wood industry. And you know, it's that's that that business was a failure, but the failure of that business was where I learned all the lessons that mattered for making Arbor actually work. Okay. You come back from your trip. You run into Chris. Before Chris talked you into this, yeah. What were you, you were going to move back to Colorado? I was moving back to Colorado. And what were you going to do in I Colorado? I was snowboard. Just I, snowboard I think and I had try this to idea figure it out? getting into real estate. Um, <laughs> probably be a much wealthier man. <laughs> I, real estate know, in Colorado? I was going to get into real estate. I love Boulder. I was going to live there for the rest of my life. It was, you know, I had this these ideas for my life. I had a plan. I'm going to get into real estate. 
I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to snowboard and work. Okay. So did you figure out real estate as you were traveling the world? Like, hey, maybe that could be my game. I, I had I had when I was working to save money for the trip, I was taking some night classes to get my real estate license because mm. I wanted to um, I, you know, when I get back, I, I knew I wanted to get into, yeah. you know, maybe developing houses. They call it flipping now. I don't remember anybody calling it that then, but, um, and, and just, just getting into real estate. I liked, yeah, I grew up with a dad who, um, did everything. So when we remodeled our house, my dad and brother and I did most of the work ourselves. Epic. And I... He, learned, he was a stuntman, right? He was a stuntman, but he was, you know, a guy from the, the Great Depression, so... Why pay somebody else to do what you yeah. can do yourself? And when I've got two sons here who I can make do it with me, um, let's this. And I so I learned to work with wood, and I learned the value of of wood, and, and and just how versatile it is. And you know, so that's how I grew up. And so I think that led me to think that I should be in real estate. But what it led me to is a is a um, a career in in an industry that's very much from Arbor is very much about craftsmanship and, and working with wood. Yeah. So well, that's a trip. So, I mean, this was one conversation. So to just just to know how how, how unsure I was, or that <clears throat> I needed to go and get in this industry, in one conversation over a few beers, Chris talked me into dropping my life's plan. Yeah, and stopping and jumping on board with this new business about sustainable woods. So when he was when that he, good, he was that good. When he, <laughs> he was the most charming individual I have ever met and will ever meet. Yeah, because. You said, yeah, we're going to fly in helicopters, we're going to surf all the time. Like, did, did you sit there and go, okay, how much am I going to get paid? Where, not really, not really, but I knew that we, you know, we we would have this product that we could sell. I, I knew koa wood is a, like a famous wood that's used in class in guitars um, and arts and crafts, and it is, it's really highly valued. I actually knew what it was, and I... Um, you know, but, so I knew that if we had access to this wood, that we actually had something that we we could sell. And I was so sure because I had my, you know, I'd been living in this environmental bubble in Boulder, Colorado, a boulder of environmentalism. I was sure that the whole world, yeah. why not? Yeah. If you could have access to something that was sustainably sourced, why not buy that over the alternative that comes from a clear cut? Um, I was wrong. And, yeah. But and the appeal it was you're At also you're like your own boss like you know you you guys it sounded perfect yeah yeah <laughs> but did you, did those things cross your mind like okay no no <laughs> yeah where how who who's our customer where do we find them we didn't know shit <laughs> we didn't know shit he had met this one guy Ken Wilcox who worked for uh, a company that sold uh, veneers uh, and he had kind of figured out that hey it's Selling the lumbers, it, we don't make enough money. We have to take Break this down. product farther down the life cycle. Yeah. So he started talking about making veneers, and um, so we had just we figured out that we should we should a veneer is a thinly sliced wood um, that is uh, laminated on. Well, other. yeah, it can be laminated on other. St- oh, hold on a second. Um, thinly sliced wood that. The cool thing about it is when you're when you're when you're sawing lumber, if you want to resaw lumber into thin sheets, about eighty percent of it turns into byproduct, the offcuts and the sawdust. Yeah. When you're veneering a log, a hundred percent of the log that you're veneering gets turned into sheet veneer. So it's an amazing way to stretch the resource 
um, and especially when you have an environmentally uh, sensitive product and you're trying to show that this is a, this has value and if we can make more out of this we can make it last longer and we can have less of an impact because of that on the environment win-win win-win yeah. and because you're taking it a little farther down the process there's more money to be made yeah so we kind of when I got there and uh, he's like I'm gonna give you half the company and we're gonna split this we're gonna have to raise equal amounts of money and we're gonna buy these logs and we're gonna resell them seems simple um, turns out you know this is you know that that the the industry, the wood products industry, could have given a fuck about the environment. It was, you know, it was a culture that saw trees as just weeds. And, you know, they, you cut them down, they grow back. Commodity. What's the problem? Yeah. yeah. Um, and we got a lot of, like, sus, you know, sustainability. Sustain what? You know, what yeah. are you talking about? Yeah. And um, it, was, it was difficult for us to convince people that they would have to spend a little bit more money on something that they could then market as sustainable. And we learned a lot about, you know, what people will do to make the right choice. They usually won't pay more money. Mm. Damn, performance must be as good. Performance and quality better be as good or equal to the non-sustainable option for them to make that choice. Um, and it, it, it better be right on all levels. And, and we were never able to get that business going properly. Um, we got it going, when, but when we started Arbor, it was just obvious that we needed it to move away. We never got it going though because we were ahead of the curve on sustainability. This is before FSC anything. So we're out in the wood products world talking to these 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 resellers, trying to get them to buy our co-wood veneer uh, around a set of values that they could have given a rat's ass about. Yeah, there was um, no precedent before of like, hey, we're going down doing what the predecessors did, and and no. we're just refining it. And we we're really the we were the first people in the wood products industry talking about sustainably sourced wood. Wow. Um, First and to market isn't always the easiest. The bleeding edge is a real thing. Yeah. Cutting edge is fun, but there's always bleeding ahead of that, and, yeah. and that's where we work. So we ended up take, going farther. We took our veneer and started making products. We made we had a little line of furniture uh, that we were, were working on. We had we were making prof, um, moldings, like crown moldings and picture frame moldings. We were actually selling those moldings back to Hawaii to the, the you know, there's a big art industry there. So that, you had the tourists for picture fame. We had frame? we had to realize that the farther we could get down the the products world, yeah. Um, Yourselves. The, ourselves, the more we could be competitive with sustainable materials. Yeah. So here we are, we're making furniture, we're making door skins, and we're making picture frame moldings, we're making crown moldings. You're, we got this little business going, we're hustling, figuring it out, and we're going snowboarding all the time. We're going up to Mammoth all the time. And Hawaii? Going to Hawaii, going to, going to Mammoth, going to Bear, and, and on, on those trips to Mammoth, we started talking about making snowboards. Mm. We started talking about, and this was a time in snowboarding where... So can I ask, as you started going down the product line and making your own product, yep. were you starting to make money? You, or We were starting to make some money. Yeah. We were starting to be able to fund the purchases of our logs. I, th you know, I think we had just started paying ourselves a little bit, but nothing to li live on. I had another job. Chris had another job. We were both doing second jobs so we could make this little business work. Yeah. So as you were figuring out what to make, yep. you're you know, diversifying the business and yes. you're, you're opening yourself up to other businesses, yes. yep. right? So you're learning. Well, the, you know, the, the wood products world <clears throat> is not just lumber and veneers, but it's, it's products that are used in construction. So the moldings that are used in construction, we were selling door skins, um, door skins, the, the door guys were buying. So 
we had figured out how to stay in that world of forest products uh, and find a way to start talking about sustainability. You know, we had this vision that coal was just the first material. Um, and so we were, th we're, you know, had our eye on what the next material would be. What year Teak is this? Or other other so forms of wood? Early 90s. Yeah. Okay. And like Surfrider, when did, I, we have to look and see when Surfrider uh, came about. Because that's when really yeah. our surf world yeah. started thinking about environmental. Yep issues yep. right is when Surfrider yep. finally came around yep. and I think that was early 90s too yep. right but anyways that's crazy again this is a generation of people that are coming out of school yeah coming into the work world with an understanding of the how bad the environment's been fucked over and um, thinking in different ways how they can make their career intersect with this idea of environmentalism yeah and um Environmental conservation. <coughs> Surfrider Foundation founded in 1984, Malibu, mm -hmm. California. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So, so you guys are are creating a business finally with it. Yep. And you're snowboarding, and that's and, and, when you started. And, and, and my God bless my partner. You know, but you know, I was the guy. I was the kind of sit down at the desk, get shit done. He was the guy out lighting fires, meeting people. You know, so. It's at this point I'm I'm working hard running these different product lines that we had built, um, and he's out looking. He's he's out kind of dreaming up our next scheme, <laughs> and you know, and that the way the funny thing is the way that that ended up is we he had you know, and this is really important to how we were able to keep snowboarding. But his parents had a condo up in Mammoth that we could use when it wasn't being rented, so we were there whenever it wasn't rented, and we'd work up there. And um, and ride, and it just dawned on us that, you know, where snowboarding was in the mid '90s was very urban, you know, influenced by music and culture, loud, hard graphics, but the experience of being up in the mountains, we were in the back country. We were, you know, we. I mean, I remember when we went out. We, we bought our first snowshoes, and we were we were chasing, you know, deeper and better snow, and. You know, I had fallen in love with the mountains. Chris had always had a love for the mountains, and it there was a disconnect. You know, there was this, there was not, there wasn't product that reflected why we go to the mountains, and it, it was it reflected a culture of people that yes, really built snowboarding, but it didn't reflect the experience of snowboarding for me. And and the and the park scene was growing rapidly, um, and you know, Chris and I were in the park a lot. Our first boards were twin tips. Um, but they still, there's something missing. And, and I think it's interesting because we were starting to get in, you know, we were now in our 20s. We're now, I'm, I started Arbor when I was 25. Um, so we were um, 25, 26. We were kind of getting out of those, that were pat, long past those teenage years where some of that stuff mattered. And we were becoming adults. And I don't want that loud graphic. I yeah, don't, I, don't yeah. Look I want different. something that's got a little more style, You're, reflects yeah. my values, reflects why I go snowboarding, why I go to the mountains, why I seek solace in the mountains, and snowboarding is my vehicle for that. And we thought that was missing in snowboarding. So the business was called Coalition. The, our work products business was called Coalition. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool, right? It's really cool. So then, and then you're going up to Mammoth. Yeah. So one day, 
You were, I can't or, remember who brought it up first, but I can rem- tell you for sure that Chris was on me. He's like, gotta make snowboards. Gotta make snowboards. I'm like, dude, I've got my hands full, man. We're making, we're making moldings, we're making door skins, we've got this little furniture project that we believe in. We're still trying to sell some veneers. You know, we can't afford to hire anybody else. I got nothing left for you. And, and he stayed on me on it. Um, and obviously he knew that he had somebody who was in love with snowboarding and would, you know, was not, it wasn't, I bought into the dream. It was just when and with what money. And because uh, we were poor shit, struggling. And he had know, other jobs. And so one day I said to him, look, man, go make one fucking snowboard. <laughs> go make one. Take a top sheet. Have Ken build us a top sheet that's the that'll be the size of a snowboard. You go make one, and if you can do it with your guys' what your veneers with our veneers yeah. with our co veneers our sustainably sourced co veneers yeah if you can do it, um, I'm in. And he fucking went out. He went over to uh, this place, um, Yama Snowboards. Michael Lish was kind of a legend in early LA area snowboarding. Who was building snowboards and monoskis in the valley, and they figured it out. And he walked into the into the building with, with this board right here. We're in the Arbor Art Museum back here. The history of he walked into the office with this snowboard. Wow! And I was like, I mean, he didn't even have to hand it to me before. I was like, yes, I'm doing this. We're doing this. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, it was interesting because the. What we, what we learned is that the, we learned a couple of cool things. A, we could make a board more sustainable. There's no plastic top on this board. So we, we eliminated a bunch of the plastics. We learned that the wood was a composite layer. Resin worked with these wood fibers just like it worked with fiberglass. So the, the boards we made had more pop and power. Absorbed some of that. Yeah, we actually had to load, we, to, get, to finally get it right, to get to a usable board, we had to pull back on the fiberglass. So we lightened the boards while we made them more strong. We made them more sustainable. We eliminated plastics and we brought in a sustainable um, wood veneer. And eventually we worked with our friend at Paul Bo, at Bow Woods and found out how to get sustainable poplar for our cores. Um, so we, you know, we started building the, I wrote the business plan and, and we started thinking about what we wanted to call it. And one of our customers was a company called Arbor Veneers. And I always love that because Arbor is the Latin word for tree. And we had been selling them some coa veneer and we went round and round, um, and we landed on Arbor um, because it, it's the, the source for us, that the materials that we use to make ourselves, uh, us at that time, so different than everybody else. And we also wanted to start giving back to planting trees in Hawaii. Actually, we, we were working on this restoration project in Maui, but we actually wanted to go and actively start planting trees, which we've now been doing for 26 years in Hawaii. So it was the beginning and the end of everything that we did. We also think a tree kind of speaks to individuality, the lines we each take. Nobody snowboards or skates or surfs the same line. Um, and trees are the most unique, individualistic thing. Um, and arbor means tree in Latin. Arbor means tree in Latin. And, and what, who uh, designed the logo, like the, the tree logo? Uh, it was designed by a, a, a design studio here in Venice called Sauce, and I don't know if Sauce is still around, but uh, friends of ours from, ours from yeah. high school. Cool. And uh, we wanted a tree that, you know, was strong, and you know the guys were gonna like it because it was strong and powerful, but yet sort of feminine, and women would like it too. Something that spoke to people's sense of the outdoors and, and nature, 
individualism and the idea that we were going to use sustainably sourced woods and that with the sale of every snowboard we were going to help plant trees in Hawaii and give back to the planet that's so important for us to go out and surf, skate, and snowboard. So we launched Arbor and that was 1990, we worked on it in 94 and uh, through the early parts of 95 and we ended up launching the brand in November of 95. We went to our first, walked our first SIA trade show in November in 94. Vegas? Uh, Vegas, yeah. Terrible. <laughs> so much fun. What are you talking about? Man? <laughs> Best. Nine days in Vegas? I'm definitely, Nine. I'm definitely older for those early trade shows. Yeah. Nine nights in Vegas. That's was, was set up, five-day show and breakdown back when you did everything yourself. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, that's what got us there, and yeah. it was... It you know, we sold, Collective we right sold 1,500 boards the first, at the first trade show, wow. and we thought we had arrived. Yeah. <laughs> we had no idea what was to come, but we, we stopped doing everything else. We let Coalition die, and we put all our energy into Arbor, and um, what mattered were those lessons, those lessons that we knew that we had to make our snowboards <clears throat> priced competitively with everybody else. We knew they had to ride and hold up and perform at every level, equal to or better than everybody else. And if we, if we thought about those things, the, how, how they performed, how they held up, and what they cost, that we could get people to consider an alternative to, the, you know, to what was out there in the marketplace. So when, you, when Chris came with this board in your life, how soon did you guys go and R&D and test these things out? Or he only right made away. one? No, we, we made this one. The flex wasn't right. Yeah. Um, there was another one that we made that day, and then we were making them in the days ahead. And we were up a bear testing them right away. Awesome. Right away. And what was your like that first day? Like I was in love. I, it was. It, it's a revelation when something you love can actually become your business. Yeah. And yeah. you know that's the dream. Um, and we were skirting around that with the with coalition, it, with environmental products, a love for the environment, the opportunity to travel, um, and do the things you love while you're traveling. But this brought it all together. And um, well, it took you to the heart of your passion. It took me to the heart of my passion. Yeah. And, um, you know. <laughs> it's mind-blowing, you know, what you were just saying, like, to create a career out of your passion, you know. So many people tr strive to do it, but when you absolutely do it, it's like, it's unique. It's unique. Yeah, it's a unique. And, and it, is, it is the launching pad for a potentially fatal life-altering <laughs> fuck-ups. Yeah. But just the fact that you, you reconnected with Chris, he's got this gig in Maui, he's trying to, you guys sit, selling wood, you're doing veneers, you're snowboarding, and then yeah. like, here you are with a veneer wood top sheet. Like, and I can detect. Took a, leap of, took a leap of faith yeah. that looking back, I mean, the, we, we delivered less than 400 of the boards we sold that year. And that's a whole saga. Yeah. I got smacked in the face with how hard it was actually going to be right away. Yeah. Um, so we made classic mistakes. I, I kind of detect a little of frustration in the beginning there, right? Well, because it's, he... I don't want to over-romance this, this experience yeah. because yeah. it was hard and we fucked up and we fucked up again and again. And we were... There was a, it took it took everything I had in toughness and stick to itness and just blind commitment yeah. to get through this. And, yeah. um, so determination and just yeah. unwilling to you know your just, first trade show. Yeah. Going back to your first trade yeah. show, how 
monumental that is the the butterflies in your stomach the day you know you set up your stoke and you're like okay fuck we're really here we're really doing it you 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 wake up that morning right and you walk to your booth and you're like oh my god i hope like someone comes by and yeah. listens to our spiel. Yes. Right. Yes. Because we've done this. We, fucking... we worked so hard. Yeah. And and you're like to get to that show. Like look at, uh, we're looking at the photo of, yeah. of their booth right now, and there's a tree. <laughs> and was it true you guys had jungle music playing? We we pulled the log off the beach, and uh, and, and and rented leaves and paper mache that shit all together. Because the booths back then were works of art. I mean, we oh, had yeah. to do something to stand out, and this is all we could think of. So we, we, our booth was a tree, and yeah, I, I, I do think we were playing some jungle <laughs> noises in there. So, so you said you sold fifteen hundred. Sold fifteen hundred boards, and this was when snowboarding was exploding. Yeah, it was. It wasn't that hard to do, um, but we definitely stood out. We were definitely different. Yeah. People noticed it. Some people hated on us right away, but there was enough people. Um, that that tried it, Wave Rave. Yeah. Been buying our boards every year since we started. But, How many went but to a Japan? Japanese customer. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's it. So yeah. I love How many it. went to Japan? Yeah. So like, we had a Japanese a Japanese distributor sign up. Yeah. He bought like eight hundred boards of the eight hundred of the fifteen hundred. It was about half. So yeah. you know. Um, and he gave us a big deposit. Yep. And in our in our stupidity, we took that deposit and built our own production facility. Oof. With this guy out in Riverside, Doug, and uh, who had been making cores from Yama, and had been learnt, watching and helping him build out his tooling and his presses, and helping him refine what he was doing, and he convinced us that he could build a factory. So we started our own factory, and um, we uh, came home from the show and got to work. We, the samples at that in that booth we made ourselves at our own. I laid up all those boards, and or Chris and I and Doug, and um, and he's in the picture. And when the, we got back, uh, we just couldn't do it. He, he he we just couldn't get up to speed. We could not make them fast enough, and we ran out of money. We burned through all the money building out the factory. So I had to call our Japanese distributor and say we can't deliver. And we spent your money. We spent your money. We can't deliver. Um, and you know he's hearing, you know you're you're done, you're you're, you're done. You're you just lost 150 grand, which back then it's a lot of money. Now fuck yeah, it was a fucking lot of money then. So this Japanese sure. dude wrote you a check yeah. for 1500. Yasuhiko 1, Nakamura. No, 1000. Uh, uh, 150,000 dollars. Yeah. And uh, and I remember telling him, I'm like, I'm gonna pay you back every dime. I'm gonna get you these boards. I'm gonna pay you back every time, every dime. And we, we scrambled and we figured out, we went down to San Diego and worked with um, worked with a guy down there who had a little operation called Creed Snowboards, Tom Turant. And I basically slept in the warehouse working night and day and we made 400 boards. Of the yeah. 1,500 boards. Yeah, and 200 went to Japan and 200 went to the U.S. And... Um, and we you lost in, money. We lost so much money. And I ended up giving this guy, this Japanese distributor, some shares in Arbor. Um, because I, I, we felt so bad and we had, we, we had made, you know, made promises that we couldn't figure out. And we... What was the guy's name again? Sorry. Yasuhiko Nakamura. And, and 
What com- what was this company called? Do you remember? I don't. Because we used to deal with a lot of Japanese. So yeah, yeah it's he never. I don't know he's retired now. Was, that it, stock it, it in Arbor. It was. It, <laughs> I actually just bought his shares back about three yeah. years ago, uh, good and he, I hadn't talked to him in maybe maybe twenty years. I hadn't talked to him, and I tracked him down, called him up, and said I can buy your shares back. And I gave him, wrote him a big check, and bought his shares back. Which by that time were, was just a little small percentage of the company, but yeah. But he, did he continue to be your? He got on a pl- no. Well, so yeah, he sold those boards. You know, the next year we, we moved over to Joyride, the the Orthodox factory. Um, which was in Orange County, and we spent a couple years working with the boys at Joyride, friends, guys that I'm still friends with to this day, um, Rob and Mike, who run Display It. Yep. Those guys, That's I met them there. Zimmerman. Zimmerman, yeah. year two, making snowboards yeah. with them. Wait, they're a snowboard company? Yeah, they're They Joyride. were, no, no, they, they, they ran. Mike was yeah. the CEO of Joyride, yeah. and, and Rob was, ran the production facility. Yeah. Are you kidding me? No. no. Those guys are badasses, yeah. yeah. And that's where I met them, um, Rob uh, Jason, Jason Keynes, yeah. um, and there's a bunch of legendary characters that went through that that operation. So we were there for a couple of years, and that and by that time we're getting to the late '90s when snowboarding exploded. It went but from did this Japanese guy keep distributing yes. your board? Okay. So the next year we were able to fill his orders, um, but we we're still in so much debt. We, we do a little bit better, and just the following year we really figured it out. But the industry just went, it just went off a cliff. I mean, we, we, I've heard count that in the mid-90s there was something like 300 brands globally because yeah. everybody had jumped in. Ride went public, you know, to big fanfare. I think K2 went public. And there was it was going to be the biggest thing since, you know, from an industry standpoint. And a ton of people made a ton of money. And then everybody jumped in. Um, there was such a huge oversaturation of product. At one point in the mid-90s, early 90s, people couldn't make enough. And they, so everybody got into this habit of overbuilding product. I think we had a couple of bad years. The economy got weird, and it went off a cliff. And 300 brands became 20 brands, 20 viable brands overnight. And, and we had to navigate that. And, and, and only because we were so different, I mean, literally so different than everybody else, did we just barely scrape through the 90s and figure out, you know, get enough business, the late 90s, get enough business to stay afloat. And, uh, what a fucking I don't think crazy, I slept one night of good sleep It's in such the a crazy 90s. story because of, of what the, the nuts on the line too. kind of thing, you yeah. know? And so on the line. The, the roller coaster ride of well, it, too. Well, well, because we started borrowing from a bank. Yeah. Right? And to borrow from a bank, we had to get co-signers. So... Our dads were willing to co-sign on our loan, and that you know, growing a business is not a way to make money. Growth is a way to get you 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 have you have to take out more capital to build your business because every year you grow, you get Cost more money. in debt, yeah. and you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and it's just a it's a treadmill that goes nowhere. Yeah. There's a there's a point where you can get past that, but it was so far in the distance, and and we as we got a little bit more successful and navigated some of that and figured out at the, by the way as things were collapsing our factories were closing too so we went from you know from our own factory to Creed to Orthodox the Joyride factory to Ride Ride moved to China we went up to Canada and we went to Taylor Dykema in San Diego then we went to Canada we were at three stores across camp three shops across Canada Every, they all closed everything in the US closed except for Never Summer God bless those guys 
Uh, we ended up having to go to Europe. We chased production in Europe for years. As the industry consolidated, our ability to find people who could actually make our boards was going away. Damn. Um, and, and, I mean, there were so many ports along that where I, th- I think nor- a normal human being would have given up. But Chris and I just had this stubbornness, yeah. this stupid stubbornness that we just couldn't Blind quit. ambition. Blind, blind ambition, but blind. It was, it, it, yeah, it was ambition, but it was, it was our, it was our pride. It was, yeah. it was, it, but it was our pride was so based in something right, making it sustainable, craft, handcrafted, beautiful snowboards. Were you okay with like, you know, keeping the business alive just to like keep feeding your like love for snowboarding and like. Because I, I mean, I at one point, like I was at some point, but then I got into you know, I, I got into my thirties, and I you know, I'm not making any money, and I'm, I'm doing this passion project, and this passion project yeah, remaining a passion project. There, there's yeah, when does the passion project of like staying yeah. afloat to like shit or get off yeah. the pot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah so I back, I wanted to go back to the first and trade we, show, and and two years into making snowboards, we added skates. Oh, that soon? Yes. That's so. So we we started. We were making skates out of our old snowboards in year one, just to bomb. We bombed Temescal Canyon on them. These big flexy snowboard skates, and we our friends, you know, started wanting. So you're them. pressing your own boards, yeah. like you know, you tooled. Up. And it, yeah, when you had a blem, which was yeah. a huge percentage of our boards, yeah, we would make it into a skate, and um, so we were making. Not thinking of it as a product yet, although we, talk, we we had talked about it in our business plan that we might make we would make skates, we'd make surfboards one day. Um, we uh, we were actually making making these skates of a fashion and um, a lot of crazy late night sessions yeah. down to Mexico Canyon. Um, anyhow, we um, so we had added the the, the cost of building skateboards. So we had year-round. We were losing money year-round now. <laughs> and, um, and we started making some shirts and some caps and some beanies. And, yeah, we were just cl- cl- getting more and more and more into debt. and uh, Diversifying the, and getting into debt. Yeah, and loss meant, you know, meant, you know, maybe your family's home is going away. Yeah, yeah, you know? a lot on the line. Lot, not just your but skin, but your parents and everything. Can we go back that first trade show? Did you and Chris like have what were your like goals or or like dream of hey at the end of the fucking trade show when we're breaking down we want to be in you know this many accounts we want to be able to I want to you know yeah. like what we, had, were your, we had actually written a business plan and we had laid out some of those goals but it got blown up so fast wow um, by by the by the the first production year. Um, that we kind of got into survival mode and we were taking what we could take and yeah. we were working hard. And it took me, I, I don't think I got back to an honest to goodness, reasonable plan till, you know, 2003 or four. Um, when the consolidation stopped and the industry got started growing again. Yeah. And uh, I mean, pr- participation didn't crash, just the number of brands. So the, in, the, the industry crashed and, um, so it was it was a few years of pure survival mode, you know, seven eight years, uh, and then, you know, we kind of came out of that time with a different process for how we were going to tell our story, and this is where we started really valuing the athlete, and 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 you know we thought that Arbor didn't have to necessarily have high paid athletes because 
we were going to be a product company. It was about the story of our, our you know, sustainable snowboards and skateboards. The woods we used, this craftsmanship, the story of craftsmanship, handmade, that was going to be enough. Turns out we were so different that we, had, and we actually needed athletes more yeah. than other brands. Brands that built their brand on the backs of, of athletes. Um, we needed athletes more than those people because we needed to build bridges to the industry that was not looking for something like this, that was looking for something like what snowboarding was. You know, this is a time when you know, form was, the, the forms of the world were starting to happen and, and it was just getting more and more core and we were staying so outside of, of what was endemic snowboarding. And we had to bring ourselves in and we did that with athletes. And that, this was, that turned things around for us in a big way. Um, and that was the first part time where I kind of said, okay, I got to step back, not be up front of this brand. I'm going to put some people who are more relevant than me, um, who are younger than me, in place. And I got to get my ego out of the way. And I got to start building what became the collective, a collective of people that care about the planet and making things proper for the planet, um, but that bring stuff to the table that's not just what Chris and I have. Um, and brought us a lot of authenticity to what we were doing. Um, and that's where the, you know, I think that's where we started working with Mike Basich and, and Kinger and, and a, a bunch of just people that changed the game. Yeah. And I was able to get back to planning, back to thinking about our, uh, the strategic plan for what, where, how much should we sell, how are we going to finance this, um, where do we want to distribute, where do we not want to distribute. Um, you know, the same story, but a totally retooled thinking about the brand. So that's so interesting that you you, you brought up the, the athlete aspect mm -hmm. because that's what our industry, whether it's in surf or skate or snow, yeah. that's that's what drives the it's business. Marketing, marketing, marketing one hundred one. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your story is yeah. if it's not told through the voice um, and athleticism of an individual that somebody can believe in. It's hard to get it across. And, yeah. and back then, magazine print was the first and foremost like form of advertising and marketing. And yep. you know, yeah. here you got a picture of a beautiful laid up board, you know, wood grain. Cool. Next picture is some guy boosting a big old backflip or yep. some sketchy trick. Yep. And then, you know, here you are mirroring, you know, the best of both worlds. And when we did that, and when we finally did that, everything changed. Yeah. So everything changed. And, you know, it's taken me a long time to, to talk about the, the failures, but actually now I really value them because I didn't see then, I, you know, I, I, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing, the struggle. It was embarrassing when people didn't get what we got. We got, I mean, I think, no, I don't, Chris and I were living our lives in the core of, of snowboarding from a participation standpoint. Yeah. We just were outsiders from the industry mm. and we wanted to be in there. Um, but we weren't welcome in there because of the product that we were making. And it was, it was only building the collective and adding to what and who Arbor was where did we slide in. And once we slid in, we found our people. Yeah. We found people who cared about what we were doing. Yeah. And we brought a voice to the table that could speak about it in a way that brought authenticity to Arbor in a huge new way. Which is so important to any brand and, any and brand. their messaging and, you know, like... Whether you're a participant or you're in the in, in, inside, mm -hmm. you know, in the industry, like authenticity is everything. Yep. yep. Always. Yep. I, I wanted to. You said you struggled for seven years. Something like that. Seven. Five. Seven really bad years. Yeah. So 
you know, a- after after the trade show, you only we make four hundred boards. Four hundred yeah. out, out of the fucking yeah. fifteen hundred. Literally to this day, there's still about five dealers that have been buying our boards every year, year in and year out. <laughs> I don't know if you saw Benny. Benny Milo Sports didn't buy the first year. We were at Salty Peaks the first year, uh, and then they dropped us. And Milo picked it up first or second year, and they bought it every year. And he, um, it was nice having him and come and talk to the documentary. Yeah. Um, and he says it. I didn't get it, but I knew I thought I should probably have it in my store. And but I just was out. So it was so alien. He's you know for years he's like it's so alien to me. Yeah. Um, which almost is, draws you to keep carrying it because you're like, yeah, you there's know, something here there's some, I can't explain it. Yeah. yeah. Hey. Well, I brought up the Surfrider Foundation yeah. um, because that's kind of when surfers became more aware, mm-hmm. and and the sport snowboarding, like it, it was, it's the newest sport. Yep. You know, surfing's the oldest, skateboarding than snowboarding. Yep. Right. And when you're a young sport, you don't have a variety of tastes or, or a, you know what I mean? There's no subcultures in the we, subculture. We, as an industry, we're discovering what, we, what it is together. Right. And, and that, that drives a lot of copycat stuff. And what's cool... You know, the next year everybody would have it's that fast fashion, but yeah, like, you know, like well, in a yeah. snowboard. Your, sense. your team riders, right, were mm-hmm. different from other team riders. They they, yes. they kind of represented your brand so better. We, we wanted team riders that believed in these this the ethic of of sustainability. You know, thinking about the planet, giving back to the planet, planting trees, mm-hmm. and the idea of craftsmanship. Yeah. So and we went out and found people who shared our values. During the '90s, was that weird? phase of of grunge hip-hop which was great culturally yep but it wasn't about the mountains the mountains or identify to everybody you know what i mean it it was about fucking big old baggy and and, and believe me that's how we would survive we survived because there was enough people out there that got it inherently in their bones but often they would go into a store and say i've seen this arbor board it's fucking beautiful i know they're doing right by the planet can you show me your arbors? And often there'd be a kid in that shop who'd go, "Yeah, we got arbor. Yeah, but let, but I, but let me also show you what I ride. Yeah. You know, let me show you this brand that yeah. I'm stoked on. Yeah. And sometimes we would get sold around because that kid in the shop that we ha- we had not made any effort to reach out to yeah. would still show share what he loved and talk about it on uh, up you know as being better than arbor. Yeah. yeah. And that was rough. You, and you if you go into a business and you don't respect the, the people that make it or break it, um, and that and that's still so important today, you could fuck up and we hadn't done anything to build those bridges. Yeah. And it's funny, it's a good you know, because that's the last uh, that's the the gatekeeper to sales, right? Absolutely. That kid on this the is, floor. There's no internet. Yeah. There was no we, there was no arborsnowboards.com. Yeah. We were telling our stories we were telling our stories only through the media and through core shops. And if you're not, if you haven't connected, I mean, I would go down and see the mags. I've yeah. made friendships there, but we were obviously outsiders. Yeah. And, and we were, our whole story was outside of what snowboarding was then. And going back to what I was talking about, how young and, and how young of a sport it was and how the grunge and the hip hop mm-hmm. and the, you know, the 90s, like baggy, flair, bright, 
graphics, all that. Yep. You're the antithesis of that. Absolutely. You're the older conservative guy, right? I mean, I think we were, we were, we definitely were selling to an older customer. So when, and, and, and that means yeah. in that day and era, it was 18 to 30, yeah. 18 to 40 maybe. But snowboarding was getting older. Today I'd yeah. say it's 18, but we weren't selling to the 14, 15 year old kid and right. we never wanted to. Yeah. You know, there's, there were, when we started, there were 299 brands for them. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't a brand for guys like Chris and I. Yeah. And Chris and I were dedicated snowboarders, dedicated surfers, dedicated skateboarders. Um, and we, uh, there was nothing for us. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I think now we make somebody for that Range Rover guy, but back then it was, there's nobody, there's nothing for us. Yeah. And, and again, like, I don't think of myself as a hippie, but I, you know, today that's kind of a cool thing. But back then that was a big insult. Yeah. I just thought myself as of somebody who recognizes that if we don't have clean water, we can't surf. If we don't have air, we can't clean air, we can't skate. And if we don't have some snow, we can't snowboard. Yeah. And and, and how can we not be part of the solution for that? Yeah. Um, but as logical as that seems, logic is sometimes not a factor <laughs> in action sports. No. And you've got to you've got to find ways of building bridges to people in ways that matter. And that again, becoming going from being Arbor to being the Arbor Collective, um, and treating the people we worked with as partners and letting them be themselves. Not telling him to get in the van and go skate here. Um, you know, when we signed up with Morgan LaFont, she's like, man, they put me in a truck full of snow. We go build a kicker. And, you know, I just have to hit the kicker a um, hundred times uh, in some urban setting. That's not who I am. I want to ride in the backcountry. So we were bringing on athletes and said, go do your thing. You know, we're not going to tell you what to do and how to do it. Go do your thing. Um, I, we're hiring you because we can learn from you. Um, you. You have a lot to say about, about shape and performance that we need to hear and the way you talk about what we're doing with sustainability and craftsmanship um, if you speak about why you're at Arbor it's just gonna help us build those bridges and it worked so that's that's when you started seeing success is when you that's when we started feeling some momentum yeah we felt momentum that first trade show right. that immediately popped because we couldn't make the boards and then the industry collapsed so we're coming through year 2000 2001 barely hanging on yeah. and this revelation that okay we're figuring out production we've got to figure out our messaging how are we going to because we wanted to stick to our message it would have been so easy to get rid of the wood and put some art you know some graphics on a board yeah. and copy what everybody else was doing we would not be here how do we how do we how do we keep doing this um and but make it work yeah did you have any factories through those years that didn't want to touch did you get people saying no i don't understand this wood thing you know like was it how was the production side? maybe in the very beginning we were so we were so naive we thought well we couldn't go to a really great factory because they'll rip us off yeah our shit was so so revolutionary that we learned a lot of lessons on how to make the wood work on a snowboard how to waterproof it how to make it hold up you know we, we could have patented how the way that we use wood on a snowboard we didn't because we're, we're tr truly if you see somebody, I'll say this, if you see somebody who patents an environmental idea that helps yeah. helps make the planet a healthier place, and they patent it so that no, no one else can use it, are they really an environmentalist? Yeah, and, all for the wrong reason. Right, it's yeah. all about money, it's not about the environment. So we didn't patent you know, how we plugged up the, the, you know, the, the end grains of our boards, how we prepared them. We figured out a whole backing system for the wood that was permeable so that the resin could push into the wood grains. 
and not sit under it, which ended up waterproofing the wood and turning it into a composite layer. We figured out how to waterproof the ends. We figured out how to get the wood flexed so that it could bend around compound curves. We did so much work to put wood veneer onto a snowboard and eventually onto a skate and then didn't patent it. Um, and today, almost every company out there has a wood top board um, and we're not, we haven't stopped that. And every one of those wood top boards represent a little bit less plastic and a little bit less glue, petroleum-based glue in our environment. Um, so, um, yeah, we, you know, so we, we had figured all that out. We'd figured out, so I know where I was, sorry. So we didn't want to take that to a factory that we thought yeah. would rip us off. Um, so we found our way through smaller businesses. Um, but once the industry collapsed in the late 90s, any factory that was still able to stay afloat yeah. wanted, was still thankful for our business. And we were able to go to where we wanted to be. Um, and, you know, there's so much learning in, in a true partnership with a factory. The improvements that we've made to our snowboards and our skates and all of our products today represent us going into a factory partner and telling them what we know and letting the brains at those factories help us evolve uh, our product. And so we learned quickly that, and this was just necessity drives, you know, as a mother of all invention, that the necessity, we couldn't afford our own engineers. Yeah. We couldn't afford our own CAD designers. So we had to work with what we had. And, and these factories were kind of that that all, all you know, one stop shop. That's right. You know, that help, right. a lot of industries are that way. Yeah. Yeah. Wetsuits. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's for their own good, too. It's yes. like, hey, we're going to invest in you as much as, you know, you're investing in us. I forgot. We were at Option Snowboards for a while in BC. And the, and the guy there, their, their head engineer, um, has been shape, has been my shaping partner. Um, this guy, George Camp, who's at SWS now, has been my shaping partner, you know, with a few couple of gaps for almost 20 years. Awesome. We followed him from factory to factory. He ended up going, worked for GST for a bit, and he was down at Elan, and now he's down at SWS. And so, uh, that's a friendship and a, a, a creative partnership that, you know, Eddie Wall works with him on our boards today. Yeah. And that is still so meaningful for what we do. So going back from, from that first trade show, you, you saw great opportunity. Unfortunately, it... it you couldn't, uh, you couldn't produce. Uh, the, the industry, the industry got, you know, the, in, the, the, the industry that was booming f fell apart. Yeah. Uh, and our, our, our na how naive we were about production hurt us. Yeah. And our inability to finance at a level that we needed hurt us. Uh, and we had to get down, we got to this pure beg, borrow, steal mode. Um, blood, sweat, and tears, and, I, and, and it was rough. Um, but the dust settled. Yeah. And we and we came through that, having learned a lot of lessons about ourselves and what was good, what was yeah. not good. So, what I was going to ask is like, you know, it's you and Chris and I don't know who were full time people in, in that first trade the show. Lee Coates is in here, who was our, um, who came in and worked and was, you know, we had a team. You know, they weren't world renowned snowboarders, but she was just she, you know, helped us get photos and she was there. Um, Doug, who helped us build the factory. Um, yeah, but the six of us, there's three team riders here um, who nobody knew. Just, they were just local kids, local yeah. bear kids. Um, no bodies in the, in the booth. Yeah, and, and they'd, they'd work in the factory, shop. they'd ride, they'd get in front of camera, and they'd you know, man the booth. And it's me, Chris, and Doug. So, so after that, right, you're, yeah. you're starting to build a team, an infrastructure, yep. right? And 
it's you know walk us through that like growth and then you know like I'm sure you had to well let I, you know it's funny, my, my brother came to work to so this was really employee number one if you could call it that you know we were paying again paying people with stock in the company we had no money yeah um, and you know the people who if you if you snowboard if you surf if you skate it's 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 so important to you that if you can you will work for free to be part of something that you love and we yeah. took full advantage of that our friend Phil Weisbecker came and worked for us for a time my brother worked for us for a time um, you know, you, a lot of people just volunteered to help. It yeah. was, it's really I mean, it's sort of overwhelming to think of the people I have a, a debt of gratitude to. And I, I tried very hard in the documentary on the brand to let that shine through that this is, I yeah. got so many people to thank. I'll never be able to thank them. What's well, it's a, a heavy thing. It's a burden to, you know, you're pushing your dream, yeah. right? You, you and Chris are, are putting your nuts selfish, on the line. You know, like, yeah. because it, it is selfishly. Yeah. But, you know, you're trying to build something for your but, future. Yeah. For your future. And then you're along the way, you need help. You're asking favors. You're, yeah, you're asking favors. You're bringing people on. You're, you're, um, you're putting more on your back. Yeah. And you're putting yourself at risk yeah. of, of bankruptcy. And then, but livelihoods, you're starting to provide livelihoods for other people and Slowly that's what surely that's the beautiful thing about guys like you and chris creating jobs and opportunities right opportunity. like we're in this building that i that's one of the things i'm most proud of uh, that one of my our, our average employee stays at eight, something like 10 to 12 years that's beautiful um one of one of my ex-employees runs van snow right now one of my ex that was with me for 12 years we we, we fought so many battles together and and this Matt, Matt Patty, we we learned so much together. He came in here, he painted this building, and he worked his way up from being just a guy who was. He wanted to be here so bad that he would do any job I gave him, and he worked his way up to being brand manager, and went off from there to run Van Snow to get the top job at Van Snow. Um, another friend right now runs um, <coughs> runs Nixon, another ex employee. I've had ex employees go on to huge jobs at Tesla. Um, Tesla? Yeah. That's crazy to me, and it's it's been a great platform for people to come in and be everything they can be because we figured out to Harvard stay relevant. University. Well, you know, to stay relevant, we had to turn the, the pyramid upside down. It's not about my ego. It's not about my victory. I want people to come in and get credit for what they do uh, and bring new a new understanding of where skate and snowboarding are today. Yeah. Not where this fifty three year old dude thinks it is, but where it is. And I, my job is just to keep sustainability and craftsmanship as the guardrails for everything we make the mission and bring in this new energy and that energy is only only is given to you if you give them the ability to take credit for yeah. uh, their work and be and be out in front at whatever level works and often that leads to them getting offers you know and we celebrate that when yeah. they leave there's, so there's a lot of brands that that you know have an end goal of yep. like Let's make this product. Let's do this, and in five years we're we're out, you know. And this it's so and, unhealthy and, for branding. And I hate and, it. And company culture. And I it happens. It. And and here this is it's so refreshing, and and it's 
and it's not old school because it still happens today. New brands and, and you know the people behind it, you know, yeah. like hey, I want it, want it to be a legacy, and I want it to they, be. They have an life. exit strategy. They yeah. found they start their brand with an exit strategy, having an exit strategy. Which how do you how do you build something that's yeah. meaningful for the people who work for you yeah. when they know you're going to sell it and get rich and leave them high and dry? And I, I you know, again, and I'm sorry for anybody out there who's doing that. And which they, is, more power to more them. power to you. Yeah. yeah, but but Arbor is now so encumbered in in the way we partnered with with we have these big partners. but that's what i wanted to highlight yeah. bring it up is like you know here you are you know 26 years in business and, and the company's not for sale and it's and it's private yeah. and you know you're you got good employees like you you know you you've gone through all the highs and lows and, and you're doing something right you yeah. know i you know I, I think a lot about we always thought about patagonia i gave them the first you know Giving product away is part of being in this industry. We all have to, we all have to put product in the right people's hands. The first snowboard I ever, ever gave away was to Yvonne Chouinard because wow. he was my hero. He he had built a business in outdoor world around yeah. sustainability um, and in fighting for the planet. And I drove up there, got a chance to meet him, and handed him a board. Um, and um, you know, I I think a lot about his his journey and his path and. I think they've had they've had a lot of great years lately, but I, I think they've in the past they had some bad years. But no one knew because it was privately held. Yeah, it, you know they, their roller coaster has always been on an upward trajectory, but there's been some down down moments, and they you know that that didn't hurt them in the perspective of their strength to the end user. Uh, and this is you know again this is my assumption as an outsider, but being private, being privately held, um, allowed them to. To not make their problems when they happen to other people's problems, and I think that's really important. And I think when you, when you're part of this private equity world, God forbid, the publicly traded world, or yeah. you've got all uh, some kind of angel investor, all of that, their 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 viewpoint on healthy business and the cadence of of getting to money is so different than what these businesses, these brands, should be about. These brands need to be about. A family and a family of that reflects a perspective, and how that perspective is pushed in through love and care and care into the products that you make. And when you know that there's some jackass that wants to make a ton of money, um, and and you're trying to give your heart and soul. It, 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 again, I've never worked anywhere else, but this yeah. is my whole life. But yeah. how how do you give your give your all? And I and I hope and I know that here at Arbor people give it their all and I owe them more than I will ever be able to thank them for uh, for that and I owe it to them to keep this place a great place to work and a yeah. great place to give and invest yeah so, so going back to it took you that first seven years was rough right yeah. so when was what what was the turning point on snow it was hiring Mike Bassett Rob Kingwell um, and uh, a few others uh, that were, you know, our first sort of nationally recognized athletes. And I mean, they weren't the coolest people out there, but for me, they were, to me, they both were actually. Mike Basich and Rob became dear friends, and I learned more from them than I, I, I would even be able to tell on this podcast. The, the, we started thinking about art and color that was right for Arbor. We started bringing in, we started hand dyeing with water-based dyes our wood and bring color to our products. We started thinking about the art that was right for our customer. We started thinking about the athlete's voice and athlete products and we started, we did our first pro model with Mike Basich um, and then we did a board with Rob. Um, and you know, these are guys that you, you know, you're starting to open our ads 
And here these guys are performing at a level with name recognition and respect in the industry that made people go, wow, Arbor's making moves. And Arbor's becoming more than this little niche, this little, this little kind of different thing. It's becoming a culture unto itself. And, and that, was a game, that was a huge game changer. And then we brought Slater on, who was a, a friend of Chris's and became, um, you know, Chris and him were at one point really good friends. And Slater came on in uh, 2007. You um, have to bring up the goat, dude. You're well, bringing up the goat. Dude. I think I Jimmy Slater. It was it was it was for our skate program. Yeah. Um, and and it, you know I don't it's I I think about it all the time because we did the, the absolute opposite of what people would think we would do with the Slater board. Um, we we talked about his love of music, his love of travel, his. Um, his love of the environment. The guy was an environmentalist, yeah. and he loved what we were doing. He is an environmentalist. He loved what we were doing because of all you know. We had been out in front talking about the environment. You know, we used to we used to skate together. We used to carboard in the Highlands together, and he was a friend, um, and he had our backs. And he came on board, uh, and we did a pro model skate with him or a collab skate with him that put us on the map, and. and and we didn't really beat people over the head with his world titles. We talked about his life yeah. and why his life brings him to a, a love of the environment. Yeah. And, and his love of music, it's, it's getting there, you know, getting to the surf with your friends. It's what you do after you surf. It's, it's music, it's art, it's, it's culture, it's friendships. It's a story, it's, it's the a journey. Planet. It's, uh, yeah. it's... And, and it, we kept it really Arbor, but he helped us tell our story in the skate world. And from there, we've just, you know, we... We have never stopped being a collective of people that fight for why Arbor is different. Um, and it's our athletes, it became our artists. We started doing collaborations with artists. And artists, just like our athletes, we were, we were inviting, not inviting, we were hoping and, and people would come to the table who also gave a shit about the planet. You know, so in the yeah. mid, mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, we started, we worked, started working with Dave Kinsey, uh, Jeff Soto, um, Sylvia G, and we were bringing on these world-class artists but they wanted to be here not because of how much we could pay them, but this was this little snowboard and skate brand that could, that was fighting to tell a different story, and they believed in it, they believed in us, and they were willing to lend their voice to what we were doing and their art to what we were doing. And that artist and that athlete became the ambassadors for a story that actually did mean something to snowboarding and skateboarding. It was now being told in a proper way, and we started growing. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's what you need. I mean, you got like, you know, again, that's probably the, the infancy of like the World Wide Web and, 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 you know, using marketing in that side. You know, you still have print still super important, but now you got these ambassadors, you got these advocates that are now like all over the place. I mean, we're Grayson, speaking, working with Grayson Fletcher. Yeah. You know, Grayson, uh, when I first started talking to him and Divi, it was like, you know, everything that was happening at his previous brand was basically the stifling of everything that he's about you know he's a he is a masterful um, gritty gnarly skater gnarly. but he rips at surfing gnarly. he yeah. loves to snowboard he is yeah. an amazing artist yeah. we're talking about his surfing we're talking about his snowboarding he's going to go up and go snowboarding with Gooch and Jackson Hole the end of this 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 season and they're going to we're going to film a little edit yeah. And he, his Gooch grew up with his uncle and his and his dad, and they've been friends forever. And Gooch is going to take him into the backcountry, and they're going to they're going to go skate a little <coughs> local half pipe, and it's going to be great storytelling. Yeah. Um, he's here because he loves the environment, and we want to tell his story. It's not about putting him in a van uh, and, and partying 
on your way to some skate park. It's about letting him evolve his story around what he believes in. But what anchors him to Arbor <coughs> is that he's an environmentalist. He believes in the craft of making skateboards. Um, and, and through you know, what, what our demographics are and through how we, we talk about these personalities that anchor this brand, he can, he can talk about his surf, his snowboarding, his art, um, all anchored obviously by his skateboarding. Yeah, and that is that's the greatest that's the latest example of how that in, in 2005, you know, early 2000s we started putting it in place. By 2005, it really started working. How the how the ambassadors for this brand um, are so true to what we founded the brand on, but have made the voice of the brand relevant in a way that kept us alive now for 26 years. And and, and the marketing too, and and not just the way you were envisioning, but the you know the industry in itself was you know you open every mag you watch whether it's do do tour or x game you know it just got so out of touch of like what you know the sport is mostly about you got that aspect of it you know like the high caliber elitists yeah but it was like everything marketing everything was like just you'd open up like i don't want to go snowboard i can't do that that doesn't look fun that looks like super ultra extreme yeah. yeah and 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 then when the when the brands so yeah. lame yeah so lame. and I, Which, that that's what killed like we talked about that's what killed windsurfing yeah inverted at hukiba inside the tube yeah that's fucking rad i will never do that that sport's not for me yeah and we when we do that we turn people off we turn yeah. new participants off we make it so rad that nobody wants to do it what yeah. we need to do is make continue to make it inclusive yes. and you know a guy like Brian Aguchi can talk about snowboarding with his kids and talk about his love for the mountains and the environment you know he's got such an authentic past in snowboarding um, but he can tell stories that that anybody of any yeah. age and any skill level can connect with yeah. and can it's so healthy for what we're doing right now yeah and so, that's and that's what you see on the mountain you know you go to the mountain and it's families and it's kids yeah. and it's parents and it's everybody and yes. i mean my dad's 72 and he's still skiing and he's like dude i'm gonna do this till i die you yes. know like i want to go to 90 and ski and you know like yeah. because they love i'm still friends with mickey munoz he still surfs every day that's so epic. every day that's wow. so awesome and he he you know his his book no bad waves it says it all like yeah. it doesn't matter you know he'll take a d wave c wave you know that's me bro. right you know more c waves you know the a waves are nice one foot days more than yes. most people yeah, yeah. Too. <laughs> and, and and his his he you know he he was in my life a person who really put some of those things in perspective about aren't you just stoked to get on the 395 and drive up there and and how much fun it is just to go to Mammoth, stop at the hot springs when you're not chasing the storm which is you get into the working world, you can't chase storms, you can't chase surf as much as you used to. So you got to enjoy the ride, and there's no, nothing better than driving from Southern California to Mammoth, you know, stopping at stopping at any of your favorite hikes, your side canyons, going up yeah. Joshua Tree, getting in the hot springs. It's just a good life, you know. And, and when you recognize that your pursuit of surf, skate, and snow is this broader thing, yeah. you know, you, you initially do it because you want to be in the water, you want to be in in the mountains, but Eventually, your life becomes is anchored by these things, but it's it's the the process of getting there, of being there, of being with your friends. And for me, um, that really led a, a long time ago to us thinking that the the gear that you need to get there should be part of what we do. And um, in the very early days, we started making apparel out of bamboo. And wow. bamboo is this amazing material that that it's both sustainable and renewable. You know, you can, it, you can clear cut it, 
um, and it grows right back, right out of the root ball. You don't need any GMO efforts. You don't need fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides to get it to grow so fast, up to four feet a day, um, to, to get that sort of productivity out of it. It's so sustainable when you look at it, the fibers per, you know, per, um, per piece of land, per acre. It's amazingly productive. And so we, we were at, I was actually at the, the place where um, we were buying our bamboo top sheets from. And this guy threw me a, 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 a bar towel. He said, what do you think that is? I'm like, a bar towel? I think it said Carlsberg on it. He said, that's bamboo. It was just invented, and we're going to start making fabrics a out of it. A bar pull? A bar yeah, towel. A towel. Like a bar towel. Oh, a bar towel. Like a, yeah. Like a little gym-sized towel. And I, and, and I was like, what? You know, that's, that, that's how we can make a difference in apparel. Like, if we can bring in alternative fabrics. Because <clears throat> cotton's really tough on the land. It's water-dependent. It's drought tolerant. It's drought intolerant. It takes up so much land, and you don't get a lot of fiber per acre. Bamboo, you can get tremendous fiber. It's harvested traditionally one plant at a time. In a lot of villages where they, everybody has their own stalks and they carve their kanji symbol in for their individual stock. And there's these collective, collectively grown, sustainably harvested, totally renewable, amazing resource. And so we started making bamboo t-shirts. And um, uh, they were so soft. They had all these other properties and that led to an early use of organic cotton. Um, so for a lot of years we've had this, this, it's our smallest thing, but it's important to us because, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the gear you get in when you're on a road trip, you know, what, you know, the, the footwear you need when you're, you think about, you know, you get in your car in Venice and you, you get up, you, you want to go hike somewhere, um, the, the functionality, the comfort, all of that's just part of the journey. So as we started recognizing in ourselves and in the brand that it's the whole lifestyle, we started filling in some of the gaps with apparel and footwear and uh, now accessories and um, and it's been a good way for us to round out what we see as as what Arbor is and it's, it's a, a, a it's not a lifestyle brand but it certainly is um, a brand that is built to a lifestyle that the people who work here live um, from from the place we all work and live and skate you know skate to lunch you know skate to work skate on the weekends. Um, to that journey we take for us, mostly mammoth, um, and what we do along the way, and then landing in a mountain town and what you need when you're up there. If it if it works between Venice and Mammoth, it's it's right for Arbor to be part of. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I so, like that. And um, and it's been good. And we've got you know I think the future for us is about sticking to those things. You know, sticking to a collective of people that share certain certain values, uh, continuing to progress products and, and uh, in a way that makes them more sustainable, um, leave a, a, a smaller footprint on the planet. Um, ultimately, my dream is to get to a place where we have we make biodegradable products that can biodegrade in the natural environment wherever they're shipped um, uh, and just ch keep chasing that dream of the perfect sustainable product yeah. uh, and keep snowboarding, keep skating, keep surfing, keep living. That's amazing. How, how's the innovation? I mean, obviously, we know where we're at today versus you started 25 years ago. But sourcing 26, it, 26. We just we just did know. a thing on our on our snowboards. At 80 percent of the materials and processes in our snowboards are completely sustainably sourced. Are completely sustainable. We are working on the other 20 percent. We just had a huge victory um, in that uh, our factory is now 100 percent solar powered. Wow! So every single Arbor snowboard is made. 
with power from the sun. Zero uh, uh, petroleum-based power sources, all 100% solar powered. That's a massive, yeah. massive goal for, that we had early on. And now we can, we can look at our customer in the eye and say, this thing has got the smallest possible carbon footprint because of how, the energy we're using to produce these boards. Um, so, you know, those are the things that we're, we're focused on and those are the things we're going to keep focusing on. And I guarantee you, if, I, if this business keeps being staffed by people who love, you know, love the planet because they got there, um, and it would never underestimate the power of surf, skate, and snow to turn people into environmentalists. Um, they got there because of their love of doing these things that we, that we do. We're, you know, we're going to keep refresh, refreshing this brand. I mean, long after I'm gone, um, if that's our culture, um, we will keep innovating around sustainability and craftsmanship and making rad shit and having a good time. Yeah. Well, you know, going to my point of like, you know, sourcing and stuff, it seems like a lot of other brands, you know, in the apparel, everybody's, you know, now able to where it was really hard to find a factory to, you know, to fulfill, you know, the demand of you know, production. And now it seems like, you know, there's a lot more going on in our industry. From You're doing a great yeah. example of for sure. building sustainable product and building awareness for it. I will tell and you that it's gotten a lot easier. Yeah. Because, consumers demanding it now. Because it's been adopted by the whole industry. You cannot which, be in this game unless you're making an effort around sustainability. You cannot there are there are retailers that will not buy you yeah. if you're not making an effort around sustainability. Yeah. It is now um, the, the bar and the standard has been raised. You you can't yeah. get in if you don't have that ticket. Yeah. And that is a great thing. It's made the innovation job easier because we now have a fully committed partner on the on the sourcing side um, who's bringing ideas to our table yeah um, instead of us coming in and throwing stuff against their wall that they're like huh? what are you talking about recycled steel edges you know reclaimed base material you know cork <laughs> and and those days are over and yeah. and the factories know that they if that for them to be relevant or for them to provide the right service, they better become experts at sourcing sustainable materials. And a lot of times it process. helps lower the cost too. It's lowered the cost. Yeah. And more people need it and do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm, I'm I'm very proud to watch where the industry has gone, you know. We we took it on the teeth. You know, yeah. like we got called hippies and soft and um, but I think today because we stuck to it, we're seen as innovators. Um, and we never try to get in the way of anybody else doing it. We always encourage people to do it. I have helped more brands uh, uh, get into natural fibers, and, and uh, I've answered every question when anybody has ever called about what you need to think about. And you know, because I think part of being out in front means you've got to you've got to help people come along. Um, and today, um, everybody's here, and it's it's so good for the planet that um, is pissed off, and we need we need to know that we're we're doing our part. Yeah. So I, I think surf, skate, and snow today is, from an industry standpoint, one of the leading industries in, in being very serious about innovating and caring about the planet and being sustainable in everything that we do. Yeah, it's, it's global, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, all through those sports, it's, it's not isolated and, and people travel and people know and people hear and the news and they know what's going on. People, yep, are, yeah. people, are, people are pretty smart and witty yep. about so what's going on. Yeah. So well, our customers demanding it now. Yeah, and um, and that's that's great. I mean, it that le but it leaves so much room to still be cool. Yeah, it still yeah. leaves so much room for innovation in riding, um, innovation in culture. 
you know, just all the other things that are rad about this lifestyle and these sports that we pursue. None of that's none of that's had to change as we've made the planet a, a really important part of what we do. Yeah, individuality will never go away, and no. it's and it's so important to to, to reach, you know. And and and, and the as, the aspects of our culture that we love has not had to go away. We just got a little bit more smart about the planet. Yeah. yeah. So, well, let's uh, let's wrap it up. Yeah. Um, I mean, we might have to guys. do a, we might have to do a take two, like I know. You know, down the line. But what you know, it's. It's so awesome to hear stories like yours uh, and Chris. Yeah. Um, the on our show, it's 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 crazy to hear the perseverance and dedication and hardships that people go through to create a successful business, and we love to celebrate that. <clears throat> but what what really what what really what really, what we get, really like, to talk, all, you know, flustered over here? a little bit. <laughs> what we really like to highlight is, look, man, you, you created a successful business for you and your family, but here it is, 26 years later. You know, we're in your store, and you employ how many people in the store? Lots, right? Like yeah. over 20. Well, if you you know if you consider all the distribution centers and everybody yeah. working on Arbor, and it's that's a lot bigger than that. Yeah. So you're, you're you've employed, let's say, hundreds of people, hundreds of fucking thousands people, of people over the years. Privately yeah. held company. Yeah. And through all the tumultuous ups and downs of business in general, you know, but also like, you know, you you have a mission. You had a mission. To create sustainable product, right? And for sure, and so many things have uh, you, you've had to fight through so many adverse uh, problems and, and whatever. And twenty six years later, dude. I mean, that's it. I think that's it. And, and I, if anybody out there is thinking about starting a business, you better believe in what you're doing because it's going to be hard. It's going to suck at times. It's yeah. going to life is going to throw up roadblocks. You're gonna hit. You're gonna hit speed bumps that you can't even perceive. And I don't care what you've done in the past. It will be hard. And the only thing that will sustain you is believing in what you're doing. You've got to be in, you know, in as deep as you can go. Yeah. Because if you're not, that stuff will crush you, and you will give up. Yeah. yeah. So believe in what you're doing. There's no manual. No. There. You know. Even if you have this the schooling, you have the finance, you have everything. I mean, like you said, you get blindsided every yeah. other. But I smart, Every other day. There's something about wisdom, and, and I've, for the first time, just built a board of directors, a real board of directors, <laughs> and the wisdom that's trickling down is, is pretty cool. I don't feel yeah. as, you know, in some decisions that I have to be alone, I don't feel as alone with that. Seek out wisdom, uh, but value hard work and, and not giving up because, you know, it's going to be hard no matter what you think you know, um, yeah. but it'll be worth it. Um, and there's something, something very true about, about success and longevity. Yeah. Uh, and if you can just hang in there and keep going and keep finding a way, scratch your way through, success will come um, if you never give up. Yeah. It's a lot easier to never give up when you believe in what you're doing. Well, dude. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Bob, we admire you, man. Carlson, Arbor Collective. Fuck, man. What a. Yeah. Congratulations. Seriously, like, success. It's, it's inspiring. And, yeah. you know, congratulations of. of 
Thank you. Yeah. Persevering. I mean, it, keep charging for it. Believe me, it is a family effort here. Yeah. And, keep uh, inspiring. This success of Arbor is based on the lot of work of a lot of really good people who've been through this brand uh, through the years, and uh, and I always remember that, and I always I always want to tap into that. Yeah. That, that we're here because of the hard work of a family of people that fought for fought yeah. for Arbor. Yeah. Through thick and thin. Congratulations. Keep doing what you're doing. Yep. Thank you for. Everybody go out and buy an Arbor product. Check them out. They make badass. There's one here in Venice and one in... One in San Diego, one in Tahoe. Opening doors at a new store in Tahoe uh, this summer. Um, And we have, more importantly than that, we have... You know, a lot of very dedicated dealers that tell have told our story for 26 years yeah. that may have made us real, and we owe our dealers a huge debt of gratitude because when you know the 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 people who buy Arbor don't get to necessarily meet the people in this building, yeah. they get to meet that person on the showroom floor that today backs what we're doing, yeah. um, and then you know that's they're part of our family as well. So yeah, yeah. I mean that's. I mean, so true in a lot of industries, but so much more in ours, you know, with, Absolutely. you know, having that, you know, that, that person that is connected to the brand, but they're also, you know, te- they, well, they're technical, they could teach, they could go out and rent online, with you. Online sales is great. Everybody's yeah. focused on that. But the lifelong participants, lifers are still built today around a conversation in a store around a product where people share their passion for things and that will always drive this business and brick and mortar in action sports will never ever ever go away it can never go away. support your local retailer support your local surf shop snowboard shop skate shop and in doing support our culture that's it yeah keep us around thank you bob bc carlson harbor collective thanks boys Caliente Southwest Grill. Clean, healthy Mexican food. Everything is made fresh daily using produce from local farms. Their salsa, their dressing, and even their marinades are made from fresh produce in-house, so almost all of the menu is naturally gluten-free and extremely clean. Family-owned, showing local love for 22 years. Check out their website, calientesouthwest.com, for all your party pack and catering needs. You could also call them at 949-515-0909, calientesouthwest.com. Ashland Hard Seltzer, made from all natural ingredients. No sugar, zero carbs, gluten-free. Great taste and guilt-free good times. Ashland Hard Seltzer. Shade Sunscreen, the best sunscreen for all surfers. Shade Sunscreen, it's been around since the sun. Shade Shade Sunscreen. Clearweather is a family-owned footwear brand started by our friends Josh and Brandon Brubaker. They are driven to create their own path in the corporate sneaker world. Less corporate, more independent. Clearweather. Clearweatherbrand.com. Fuwax is the best, ickiest, stickiest wax in the game. Fuwax. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please give us a five-star rating and spread the word. Special thanks to our good friends, James Williams for our awesome artwork and Justin Reynolds for the amazing music.